Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. So before we jump into this episode, we're going to check out a track from a band that we discussed in this episode. The song's called The Coal Miner's Son, and it's by Taken by the Burning.
Welcome to episode 44. As always, you can find the podcast on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com. Make sure you give us a follow on Instagram at Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. You can always find out about upcoming episodes there. Speaking of upcoming episodes, a few people I got coming up. Uh, my buddy Ian Courtney from Detroit. Justin Kern, who played in a lot of good Buffalo bands like Robot Has Werewolf Hand. Uh, Paul from The Red Death. Uh, we're going to have Chris Ring on again, probably in November. And uh, for episode 50, my buddy Jim and I are going to be doing the top 50 breakdowns, which will obviously be a pretty... Uh, detailed episode. I want to send a, a, a congratulations out to Refine Taste for winning the City Best of Rochester podcast contest. Uh, as I said on the last episode, I kind of had a feeling they were going to win. Uh, they were obviously the most professional podcast out of the four. You know, I was just happy to be nominated. And I want to say that I was telling people before that if I won, we would be doing some sort of celebration. But because of all the support and just, I think Rochester needs it, we're going to have a pretty big celebration in the spring. I got some people I'm working on something pretty cool with right now. So we'll have more information on that real soon. And then the last thing before I bring my guest on is uh, we had a new local band play their first show last week, uh, Only Shallow. My buddies, Jared and Matt, who have been on the podcast before in the band. Now, the show was kind of weird to me because it was like outside behind the bug jar and I might have been, you know, uh, doing my little pregame before. So I kind of felt like I was at a rave at first, but uh, it was, it was really cool to see. And I definitely recommend checking out only shallow. If you like, like good, fast, dirty, hardcore, and obviously know a map from new ethic. There's a, there's a good message to be had with that band. So check them out as more comes out with them. So tonight we're going to be having some fun. We got my old bunny, uh, Vincent Gargiulo, who played in some bands in Buffalo, some bands in Rochester and He's the uh, second person on the podcast from Hornell, New York. So I'm guessing that will come up a little bit in his intro. So I guess with all that being said, how's everything going for you tonight, man? It's good, man. It's an honor to be on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've actually been looking forward to this one for a while. Like, I, I, I honestly, with all due respect to some other guests, I look forward to talking to people like you, who I, I knew pretty well for a while there, and I haven't gotten a chance to talk to in a while. Like, for me, sometimes this is more of an excuse just to kind of catch up and like shoot the shit for a couple hours you know good call man yeah it's been a very long time since we've been in the same room together and i feel like we have a very interesting history to me and you well yeah we do as i as i, I think i reminded you when i was uh putting the outline together today you actually helped me with a website for a little while back in the day so i totally forgot about that I, you're gonna have to like pick my brain and remind me about that because uh, I don't remember any of that, but I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were, you were one of like three or four people that designed it. So, um, but we will definitely talk more about that. But as I like to do on the podcast, I like to kind of start from the beginning just to kind of get everybody an idea where everything comes from. So I mentioned Hornell, New York. So let's kind of start there if you don't mind. Hell yeah. So, um, well, in terms of music, since this is a music podcast, I feel like we should back it up a little bit. Uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And in Brooklyn, rap was a really big thing. So I kind of got into music in the rap world, like 90s rap. Um, I had a boombox and I would listen to the radio. And if, whenever I caught a song that I loved, I'd hit record, you know, as fast as I could. And I'd, I'd make myself like a little mixtape. And I remember the song that hit me the most was Don't Trust It by Public Enemy. And Public Enemy was like my jam back then because it, it was like aggression, great like musical hooks, and also a message. And that kind of became my pillars 
for everything I did musically from that point forward. It like influenced me so much. Um, so after getting into like hip hop and I, I would, I would go to nobody beats the whiz, which was like this local uh, music shop and buy singles off the wall. Cause that's like all I could afford, but I would look for like my favorite songs, buy all the singles. And that's how I just like started my love of music. And then because I loved like aggressive music that got me into like slowly got me into metal and, and hardcore and things like that. So when I would, when I moved to, from Brooklyn to Hornell, my, my dad had a weird connection with Hornell, New York. He used to go hunting with his buddy up in Hornell because it was so secluded and so different from, from the city. Um, and after being up there like a handful of times, they they thought you know we should get out of brooklyn because it's just getting too crazy it's too they, they were born and raised in brooklyn so they were just like sick and tired of it and i was zoned to go to the very first high school in this in the united states that had a metal detector which was south shore high school which if anyone's from brooklyn knows it's like the worst school in the world so they're like before this kid goes to high school and goes down like the wrong path like well, let's get him out so they decided why don't we move to hornell new york we're like vaguely familiar with it our best friends live up there and that's how i ended up in the western new york area at all um i remember visiting Hornell a lot. And every time I visited, we would go out in the woods and build stuff. You know, we'd build like forts and things. So in my head, I was like, cool, I'll build a fort in the woods for the next four years. Like, I'm cool with that. So we that's how I, I said yes to moving to Hornell. So we ended up in Hornell. Um, I had a whole group of really great friends, like probably the best friends I've ever had in my whole life in high school in Hornell. I, I, I feel very, very lucky because a lot of people go through high school with like not the best experiences. I feel extremely lucky that I had like the greatest friends in the world there. And for the most part, we were all into like the same kind of music, which was awesome because we would bounce things off of each other. Um, so that's how I got into like Metallica. The very first CD I ever heard in my life was Ride the Lightning because my buddy got a CD player and that was the first thing he bought. Um, so we were just fell in love with all like what I would call like the fathers of metal, which was like Metallica, Sepultura, Machine Head, all those kind of bands. Um, we fell in love and we were using, you know, we were listening to them all the time. And if somebody got a, a new CD, we would let someone else borrow it and make and cut tapes of it and all that stuff. So we were just constantly sharing music and, and constantly influencing each other by having this love of music shared between us we all slowly got into making music and learning how to play so you know all those influences made me want to be a player and so i took some local lessons at like this i took lessons at like this local shop uh this guy anton who was like the hippie of the town uh he used to have this fest called anton fest which was like it was like the slang term for it, but that's what everyone knew it was. And it was like this hippie fest. And he would just let anyone who wanted to play, play. So like my metal band would play like 2 a.m. at this crazy fest. Um, so he taught me how to play like my very first Metallica song. And from that point forward, I was hooked. And I would just, you know, I would just play along with my favorite albums. And that's how my love of music started and how I started playing music at all. You know, it's really funny because 
you telling that story about that music teacher, like, I think anybody who knows of or had a guitar teacher, which I never did, but I think your first impression is like that hippie teacher from Beavis and Butthead. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Like my coworker yesterday told me he's going to be a guitar teacher too. And I was honestly envious because I'm like, I don't have the patience to like teach people like that. Like having kids now, I'm like, man, I'm really impatient. But like, I do think it'd be cool to be able to pass that knowledge on to like future generations, you know? Yeah, I think he was really smart too. And where he taught me some basics for the first couple of lessons. And then he was like, well, what do you want to learn? And I said, well, I want to learn a Metallica song. So he found like the the most like ballady Metallica song he could and taught me how to play Fade to Black. And once I like, once I got into being able to play music that I loved, I was hooked. And then I would just go find more and more and more of it. And whenever someone asked me like, how do you, how do I get into playing music? Like my buddy, Jonathan from New Jersey, he's, he's trying to get into playing music. I said, just learn some basics just enough and then go find music that you love. And now that the internet exists, like you can find anything you want to play. And like, that's what'll hook you. Cause then you could play like, you know, Nirvana all night long and, and it, cause it's easy enough. Um, and, and once you get hooked on music, you love, then it's easy to keep going. Yeah, I completely agree. And one other quick question I want to ask, or like point I want to bring up before we uh, jump back into the timeline is you talking about like Brooklyn and New York city before you went to Hornell, it makes me think of like your future, one of your future bandmates. And have you ever talked to Jeffers and been like, do you, do you think there's any chance we ran into each other unknowingly in New York city? Like, like <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike was from a small town, like right outside of New York City. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he came into the city for shows all the time. But we were, you know, I don't think we ever ran into each other. Um, you know, we were so young at that point, too. Like, getting away from home was not really a possibility. But it was cool. Like, me and Mike saw eye to eye a lot because of the New York City connection. Yeah, I can imagine. And you talking about your parents, like, relocating to, like, for lack of a better term, like a safer place. Mm -hmm. um, as I've referenced on this podcast numerous times, like now that I have kids, like I've, I've spent most of my life living in the city, mostly the city of Rochester for that matter too. But I can only think of a few months of my lifetime where I've lived in the suburbs. But now that we have two kids, like that's all my girlfriend and I ever talk about is like, we own our house in the city, but we definitely want to try to get into like a more like suburban, like obviously better school district and just safer, like play. If I could tell you the things that were going on on my street, the last few years, oh, you know, God. Your head spinning, you'd be like, you should not be there with kids. You know, it's crazy. Like, oh. We don't live in the hood or whatever you want to call it, but like there's definitely a seedy element around here. And it's not, it wasn't like that when we first moved in here. And now it's like, ugh. And now we Interesting. I, I, in my head, Rochester's a very safe place, but I know it has its pockets. Yeah, definitely. So you kind of started talking about like your introduction to like, uh, I guess for lack of a better term again, like extreme music, but like, like what about like, like hardcore and punk and stuff like that? Like, did that come into play uh, when you were in Hornell too? Right. So I had this thing called the BMG Music Club. And I don't know if you remember what that is, but it was like this crazy mail order system that was like, I'm going to give you like 20 CDs for a dollar. And then from that point on, you just got to buy a CD every month. And it was this like scam, but everyone was into it and everyone did it. So I ended up just getting like all this music that I wasn't like 100% sure of, but ended up falling in love with a lot of stuff that like rode the line between metal and hardcore like anthrax and I, I can't remember the exact bands but it like started oh like biohazard which like rode the line between metal and hardcore and for somehow some way i got a vhs tape of a bunch of headbanger balls 
from MTV, like, like that MTV show, in a row. It was like 10 episodes of Headbangers Ball in a row. And I would rewatch that tape over and over again. And there was a Biohazard song on there where they're walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. And that was like, oh, this is hardcore. This is like slightly different realm. And I remember falling in love with that and wanting to know more like what this was. But my, my true vein into the hardcore scene was my buddy Vic Lazar. So Vic Lazar, um, he played in a lot of bands in the Buffalo scene. Most notable was Union, um, and then he played in Great In Between. Those are probably the two biggest ones that I can think of. Um, he lived in the next town over from me. He lived in Canistillo. So Hornell and Canistillo are basically like these tiny little, you know, farm towns, essentially. Um, so he lived in the next town over from me, and somehow, some way we met or ran into each other or became friends and we were like boys like we were we were buddies we hung out all the time and i remember we somehow became friends in his senior year of high school and then he went away to the university of buffalo and because we were you know doing like our little local band together he knew i was into heavy music he would make me mixtapes and send them back um so they were like every amazing hardcore thing you can think of he would get it onto this mixtape and send it back to me and he would write on the back of the mixtape like what each band was and what the song was so i would know what i loved and what i didn't love and that was my basically that was like my introduction to hardcore was him feeding me all these amazing bands like despair and 108 and like uh, Union and Earth Crisis and all these bands that I would have never really heard of unless I was in the scene, but I wasn't really old enough to be in the scene. Um, but that was such a huge influence on me. And I don't think he realizes how big of a deal that was and how simple of a gesture that is, but what a difference it made on like the outcome of my life. It basically swayed me to go to the University of Buffalo because I wanted to be part of this hardcore scene. Um, it, it swayed me to, to start playing more like chunky music, more hardcore-esque music. Um, it made me want to start a band as soon as I got to school. Like all that music just drove me to hardcore. There's, there's a ton of like follow-ups there. I'll probably forget some of them, obviously. But, but you had mentioned in your notes that you played in a band in high school, well, a, high, a band that you had written music in high school at Vic Lazar. So I imagined that he must be from yeah. your area and didn't really realize that. So yes, yes. He, yeah, that he lived in the next town over. So we started a band together called Tight Herb Walker. Um, and he was very influenced by um, like what we called indie rock at that point or emo. Um, so bands like Texas is the Reason, Quicksand, Sunny Day Real Estate. We were into all that stuff. And he really played guitar like that. And me being a young guitar player, I learned a lot of I learned a lot of how I played guitar from him. So our band sounded like those bands. It sounded like Texas Reason and Quicksand and, and all that. Um, so we, you know, me, Vic, and our other buddies had this awesome outlet to be creative with whenever he was around. And he would go off to college and come back and we would like basically make albums in my basement, play like local shows here and there. Um, and it was it was just such a cool experience and such a positive musical experience. And then the other thing, I, I feel like you probably touched on in the beginning, but like sometimes when I'm doing these interviews, like I kind of just get stuck in the fact that like I'm from like Monroe County, Rochester area. 
so I know where all this stuff is. But like for people from outside of Rochester, like Hornell, New York, you you alluded to the fact that it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. But that's like what, like an hour and a half, two hours south of Rochester. Right. So for the viewers who don't know, or the for the listeners who don't know, Hornell is one hour south of Rochester. So it's kind of in the middle of nowhere-ish, but very easy to get to the major cities that are part of Western New York. So it's two hours to Buffalo, one hour to Rochester, two hours to Syracuse. So being from a small town and being in love with this music, it was pretty easy-ish to get out and see it and then come back home. And then the other point that I do want to bring up that I do remember now is you mentioning like Vic introducing you to this music. I know people listening will realize like Biohazard, Texas is a reason we're talking about like mid nineties, but like, can you put like kind of like a time frame just so people know like exactly like the, the high school, the college transition age? Yeah. So I must, I graduated from high school in 1997. So this must've been like late nineties. I, I moved to Hornell when I was 12 and that was like 1992 ish. Um, but I already was like, I moved up there with like, and justice for all cassette tape in my backpack. So I was already like well into music at that point. Um, but that was that whole era of time to me, like golden years yeah. of, of like hardcore and metal. Um, Everybody kind of says like my age, like their age was their era was the best, but like, I, right. I never realized you and I are that close in age. I do feel like our era is like a pretty, a pretty good era for hardcore for the reasons you were referencing. Like there were so many different genres going on at once, but they were yeah. all kind of like coagulating. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like now where it's like, okay, you'll have Code Orange playing like with a bunch of metalcore bands or you'll have Turnstile playing with some hardcore, but mostly pop. You know what I mean? Back then it was like an emo band, a metalcore band, a hardcore band, a punk, all on one show too, you know? That's such a good point. Cause I, I don't, I really miss that. And I feel like that doesn't exist anymore. And it absolutely existed when, when we were growing up, like Elliot would play with despair on the same show and it didn't make any sense, but it, it was totally welcoming. Like everyone was part of the same hardcore scene and it didn't, it didn't matter if you were slightly, you know, heavier or slightly lighter than the next band. We were all a big cappy family in a way, and it was totally acceptable for all those bands to play in the same bill. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about Furnace Fest later, and Furnace Fest kind of like rekindled that. Yeah. And they made a point. A lot of bands made a point to say that at Furnace Fest, where they were like, "This is what it used to be like." Yeah. You know, a random indie rock band and a heavy band on the same show, and it was totally cool and totally normal, and no one ever questioned it. Yeah, so I, I completely agree with you. And like, that's something I've definitely been talking about on here a lot. And um, obviously, I'm kind of making reference in the beginning of the episode to something really cool that I'm going to do. So that may or may not kind of have something to do with what we're talking about. But um, I do think especially post COVID, like so many people are so jazzed to see live music now that I do think we'll see more mixed bills. We already kind of are. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long it'll last for, but it, it is something cool. Like the show that I was talking about in the beginning of this episode, uh, your, your old uh, neighbor or person from your area, Jared Johnson from Hornell put on the show last Friday behind the bug jar. And it was so weird getting there. Cause I'm like, I really felt like I was at a rave at first. Cause it was like all these different kinds of people there. There was like sure. a DJ, you know, I only got to see their band play, but from what I could hear the music when I was walking home afterwards to the bus stop or whatever. And it sounded like, like di- more diverse than what Jared, like not, not like saying that Jared's band isn't diverse, but like a different sound than his band. So you could tell, like Jared books diverse bills anyways, 
but it was cool to be at a show like that where it's kind of like what we're talking about where you can tell they're not trying to just have like all traditional hardcore bands or all you know what i mean like it's we're gonna start mixing things up more so i love that i i can't listen to chug 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 for four hours straight man i mean like i need a little variance yeah. i love that i don't listen to like a ton of like different stuff like i i, I do listen to mostly like the the meat and potatoes hardcore but when i go to shows i don't want to see all the same band you know what i mean like i like seeing diverse stuff yeah. uh now, speaking of shows, though, are there like early standout shows for you that kind of like made you realize you were going to be like more and more into the scene? Or is that more when you came to Buffalo that started happening? Well, there's definitely some shows that I would pop up to Buffalo to go see. Uh, pretty rarely Rochester for whatever reason. But I feel like there was a point where Buffalo was way bigger in terms of putting on shows than Rochester was. Um, so I would go to Buffalo a lot. And plus, I had the Vic connection. Um I distinctly remember I went up to hang out with Vic for a week to make sure I really wanted to go to college there. And we went to a show. I'm pretty sure it was AFI, Envy, and Despair. Um, and I was a metal kid. Like, you got to remember, I'm like a, this dirty metal kid. And as soon as the show started, as soon as the music started, I was like, moshing and like and ran, running into people and like trying to get the mosh pit going and <laughs> and, and Vic had to pull me aside and no one was having it and Vic had, to pull, Vic had to pull me aside and be like okay so I get what you're what you're after here but everyone is not quite into that yet like it's it's n we're not there yet you know everyone's like more here to chill with each other and listen to music so I was like all right I'll just stand still for a while and see how this goes um but that was that was awakening for me because I was like, oh, this is a, a scene of people. This is basically a group of friends who show up to shows and enjoy something together. It's not, it's not what I thought it was. Um, so I loved that aspect to it, but it took me a while to get used to it. Um, and then I remember distinctly remember a separate show. I went and saw Earth Crisis play and they were an enormous influence on me because they combined messaging with music. And I love when bands do that. That's my kind of favorite thing um, because it, it gives such more importance to the music. And they would set up uh, at their tables, at their merch tables, they would have old, I mean old, it was the nineties. They would have like a little TV playing what happened in the factory farms, like raw dog footage of what was happening in factory farms, the atrocities that were going on there. And I remember thinking, I didn't, knew nothing about that. I was a meat eater because my parents raised me that way. I knew nothing about that. And it was so eye-opening. And they had somebody go up on stage and say a little something about, you know, the, the factory farms and, and going vegan and things like that. And I just remember thinking, I was a very, I'm a very logical person. I was like, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. I went vegetarian at an earth crisis show. And from that point on, I've been vegetarian ever since because they opened my eyes. So that was a huge like moment in my life. And I followed them ever since. Um, and then I remember showing, going to a bunch of union shows because I was boys with the union guys and union always blew my mind. Uh, so I loved watching them play. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the vegan vegetarian thing. I, I had uh, an old friend, uh, Dan Butson, who played in like a canvas, a bunch of some bands you probably heard of, but he's from this area too. And we were talking about that exact thing, like going vegetarian and vegan because of hardcore. I mean, I made the argument that like, we might have done it anyways, just because like, it's such a, a thing that was so important to us that we probably would have found it eventually. 
However, there's no way to really know because we got into it from hardcore. All of us did. And we all, we all pretty much did the same thing. Like I was 16. I was at the first Syracuse three day super fest, which turned into Hellfest. uh, Literally the day that the gun got pulled on Carl from earth crisis outside. And we all got stuck inside and I ate this like fucking awesome meal from hungry, hungry Charlie's. Uh, That's that's the name of the venue in Syracuse at the time. I think that, I think that's what that show was. And they had like a, like vegan food there prepared. Like I had had some stuff like that before, but never like this. It was really good. And after that weekend, I, I became vegetarian immediately. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I didn't wait anymore. Like we've been talking about it for a few months. Um, and it wasn't actually, no, it was two weeks later. I became vegetarian because I was going to a spaz show and I got made fun of for buying beef tacos. The singer of the band that we were roadieing for that day had been straight edge, but he broke edge, but was still vegan. And he sees me eating the beef tacos and he's like, man, you won't put this in your body. Like pointing to his 40. And then he points to the beef and he's like, but you'll put that in your body. And I was like, man, between that and the Syracuse shit, I'm like, yo, that makes perfect sense. And like, I've been vegetarian. And I don't know if you still are, but I've been vegetarian for like 24 years now and vegan for like 12, you know, still going, still going. And that's, I, I really hope that earth crisis understands the amount of people that how much the amount of lives that they've changed. Yeah. I don't know if they fully understand it or not, but I, I remember, I feel like it was dead to the world. I can't remember who, it must have been Dead to the World. I remember playing a show with, with Earth Crisis. It was like Dead to the World, Sick of It All in Earth Crisis. And I, I, I sat down with Carl behind behind the scenes, behind, you know, backstage. And I told him that point blank. I'm like, dude, your band changed my life. Fully changed my life. Changed the way I think about things. I mean, such a big deal. You know, and they're one of those bands that I wasn't huge into back then, but I obviously respected what they were doing because what you're saying, like, like, I can't think of any band from the nineties that like had that big of an influence on people. Like you're saying, you know what I mean? Yeah. And one thing that I think it was on Hoya from Madball's podcast where he was, or maybe it was Jamie Josta. It was one of those two people interviewed him a couple years ago. And they were like, you guys couldn't have like maybe invested it or started like an almond milk company like 20 years ago. Like, uh, I know. Cool. Right. It's cool that they have like such an influence on people, but I don't think they've, and I don't think they care that that's not the reason why they did it, but I don't know how much they financially gained from it. Whereas places like, silk or whoever owns that company and all these other companies sure. that made billions you know sure, sure i mean it's cool that they're they're one of the most influential hardcore bands of all time though you know it's you can't argue that at all you know mm-hmm. so i uh, now at this point like you said you ended up going to school in buffalo and obviously got more involved in their community i know you ended up playing in dead of the world like kind of take me back to how that all that all transpired yeah yeah so once i moved to buffalo and started going to school there i really wanted to get into playing in a band i really wanted to get into being a part of the hardcore scene for real for real so somehow some way i think i knew rob from union because he was you know rob and mike from union uh, so i was already friendly with those guys and somehow some way i don't remember how it how it came to be but we started dead to the world together and it must have been us three at first because i don't remember i know it was this guy justin schubring as well um so it was us four at first and i don't think we had a singer quite yet but we started a hardcore band called dead to the world and we must have been writing songs together or something like that in the basement of discovery records which still exists which blows my mind um well, not Discovery Records, but the basement of Discovery Records still exists, um, the dungeon. Um, so we were playing down there and we 
we kind of knew like what we wanted to do with the band um a lot of the riffs came from like me and rob's brain and it was just so much fun being able to finally like put you know the wheels to the road and like do it you know and like be in a in a, in a band that was going to play hardcore shows and stuff like that because previous to that i was playing in my basement or playing in a barn you know to some friends at a party so it was it was amazing to be able to finally be in a real band and somehow some way these kids from michigan moved to buffalo and we befriended them um mike is always you know talent scouting essentially <laughs> so he made friends with those guys and one of them became our singer and we went and did a demo at uh what's the place in lockport is that watchman or is that or you went yeah watchman yeah yeah watchman uh we did it at watchman which is like became our our place um and i distinctly remember you know because we're like 19 years old or something like that i distinctly remember when it came time to do vocals kyle running around the room doing his vocals and and doug white being like what is this kid <laughs> like, like he was just a maniac in the room because he was he didn't understand like this is recording or like maybe he just didn't give a shit like he was just so into it he was all over the room recording his vocals and it turned out awesome it was like the best thing we ever we ever did and i just think remember doug white being like yo this kid is nuts but this is awesome <laughs> uh so yeah so we did death to the world for quite a while i remember doing it through most of my college career and it got pretty big or I don't know if big is the right word, but it got really important to us. And we kept doing it and kept doing it, kept doing it. Um, eventually got picked up by Jamie Hatebreed and he had his label at his time called Stillborn Records and put us on his label uh, and then started booking us crazy shows. I mean, like the dude would, number one, Jamie Hatebreed is like the godfather of Connecticut or the godfather of hardcore. And he could pull any string he wanted. So he would put us on the craziest bills possible and because he's trying to push his 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 band you know and and he believed in us um so we got like the worst tour van we could possibly find and started traveling to connecticut every weekend and playing these insane bills that that jamie would put us on we played with hate breed too many times that i can count and i feel very very blessed and lucky to have been at that moment at that time because that was like the golden age of hate breed in my personal opinion it was like death of desire just came out those shows were nuts people went crazy and we we're like front row seats for the whole thing so anybody, i'm sorry anybody who who is like younger than us and might have gotten into hardcore like even five years later like early 2000s mid 2000s might not really realize what we're talking about I might just think of hate breed as this like kind of fringe like hardcore metal band where like the, the kids we were talking about earlier will kind of do like the push pit stuff or whatever sure. and i always tell people that like 97 hate breed like oh you can't fuck with that like the drumming for one the drumming on that satisfaction record is perfect to me i i'm reference that all the time but like you're talking about those shows like any hate breed show back then first of all the pit forget about it oh my god 
but like all the bands they would play with and bring out like you were referencing to it was just that was that that was like like serious hardcore for me in 97 you know oh yeah first off they're like perfectly written songs like every song in death desire is a perfectly written song uh jamie has just just like this amazing ability to he, I, what i think he does is he takes like the pop punk structure and applies heaviness to it so it comes out being this like perfect written song and this perfectly structured song but every song is is catchy and amazing and heavy as hell and everyone wants to like punch each other to it somehow it it's perfect and we got to see it front row seats every time and it was awesome um so being like being like jamie's guy was very interesting because number one we got on these crazy bills i remember this bill was caven shy halud dead to the world and hate breed in that order i was like what what is this and everyone in the audience was like what is who is this band but it happened i was there um so we got on crazy bills and we got a lot of just opportunities um that we would have never gotten otherwise um so we by having all these opportunities we were constantly on the road constantly touring i mean for two dudes who were in college it was brutal and for mike being a teacher at that point brutal but Mike was like, you know, the tour manager and pushing us every step of the way. Uh, so we were gone every weekend for, I think, almost my entire first or second semester, like for a long time. And eventually it was like killing me and Rob's like GPA. It was awful. But, you know, at the same time, we were loving it because it was this amazing opportunity and, and we we're playing all these crazy shows. Um, I have a bunch of fun tour stories that I would, I think the, the listeners would love. Let's, so, let's start with Hatebreed first. Tell me any funny Hatebreed stories and then we'll go through Oh, that. right. So the two things that come to mind with Hatebreed, number one is for some reason during that time period, for years during that time period, all the girls loved Hatebreed. And I, maybe because it was catchy music, I don't know what it was, but there would be like a hundred girls who are in love with Hatebreed, the music at the show, and they would all be in the very front row. So it was like hundred girls at the front row singing along all with their fingers pointing up <laughs> and then like a hundred dudes behind them trying to kill each other. And it was just the most amazing sight. And me and Rob would always make fun of it being like, what I have in my heart, like those girls voices. Cause every time he put the mic out, that's all you would hear was just girls <laughs> singing along. So it was just amazing to see this like sea of women singing along to Hatebreed every single show. And then my second favorite thing about Hatebreed was Dead to the World had a deaf roadie. This guy, I'm forgetting his name. Um, Dave, Dave Lockery. Yeah. So we had a deaf roadie named Dave Lockery that came out on the road with us all the time because he was part of that Michigan crew. He's the sweetest guy in the world. And we, he was like our little brother, basically. Um, we were a little rough with Dave. We definitely treated him like a little brother, like the way a big brother treats a little brother. Poor guy. So Hatebreed did the opposite. They like fell in love with him and they treated him like, like royalty. He would be on stage for every single Hatebreed set. Just like Dave Lockery standing in between a bass cab and a guitar cab while Hatebreed's killing it every single show they loved him and they always treated him right i got to meet that guy i can't remember if it was hellfest 2001 or 2002 one of those hellfest debacles i want to say 2001 because it was the one at the weird sports complex or whatever 
but yeah, he seemed like a nice guy. And Rob had already been kind of hipping me to the inside jokes or whatever about Warzone yeah. and Dropkick Murphys and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he 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 wasn't a hundred percent deaf. He could hear or feel something, yeah. and he like he liked fast and hard music. So he was like in love with Warzone, and he loved Hatebreed because it was just like fast and hard, you know. Yeah. Um, now. I don't know if you have any other any other Hatebreed or tour stories, or I, I know from talking to Rob and, and Mike in the past that there's some fun van stories too, if you want to type. Oh my God, that van. So we we were basically driving, driving around the death machine. Another funny uh, person who comes up a lot when it comes time to talking about like dead of the world and roadieing. And I was even going to ask you like how he was never considered as a vocalist, but I have an idea, but let's hear some uh, funny Steve Titus. Uh, stories oh if you God. have any. Steve Titus that dude is amazing he's Steve Titus is like a superhero you know like he's <laughs> like a large he's like a larger than life human being um but there was whenever Dave couldn't do a, a tour or a weekend with us we would invite Steve Titus out so he would come out every once in a great while and there was uh, how do I say this without getting Steve in trouble um so there was one night where Steve, we got like McDonald's or something and Steve was eating in the back seat and he had all this like sauce all over his face. And <laughs> Rob turns around with a chicken nugget, dips it into the sauce that's in between his like lips and then eats it. That's insane. I think Rob might've even told that story when he was on. I, Cause I feel like I might've heard that one or maybe it's just one of the ones Rob's told me over the years. I mean, Steve Titus anecdotes, you know, we could have an episode about that. That's someone that I would love to talk to on here. Um, I'm kind of hoping that, I'm, I don't know if you've noticed, like Buffalo guys have a podcast called Nickel City Scene. Oh, I'm cool. Gonna, yeah, it's like Mark Miller and some of those dudes. I'm kind of hoping that they get him on there soon because that would be more fitting for him to be on a Buffalo podcast. But he, he needs was to- such a He was such a character and such a huge part of the scene. Yeah. The, the era that we're talking about, too, for people that weren't around Buffalo, Rochester, mid to late 90s, like, I feel like Steve was like the glue that kind of held a lot of it together. Cause that SBYC, all the shows they booked, like um, pretty much any, any influential hardcore band from the late nineties, they pretty much booked them. You know what I mean? So it's just crazy to think that it'd be cool. It'd be really cool to hear those stories from him though, too, you know? Yeah. I mean, probably one of the most influential non-musician people, you know, in the scene. Yeah. Now, uh, before we jump uh, from dead of the world to like more Rochester stuff, uh what other like like funny or memorable stuff do you have because obviously you did to the world for a few years you know yeah yeah um there was one last one i can think of where we were staying in monroe new york at mike's mom's house right before we were gonna head to new york city because we were booked on nyu live which was basically the college had bands come in and they would just hit play and like let you play live on the radio. So it was such a cool opportunity, but it was an insane ice storm that night. So we were going back and forth, back and forth. Like, should we go? Should we not go? And in the end, like in true dead to the world style, we all got in that crazy ass van and drove into the city in an ice storm. There was zero cars on the road in Manhattan. And I'm sure there was some sort of emergency in, in ordinance that we weren't supposed to be out on, but we showed up. The guy was there to do it and we did live at NYU and we were able to use the recording from that from that point forward. And it was just such a cool opportunity to play live in New York. 
yeah and live on the radio in new york's got to be really cool too especially like you and you and jeffers having ties to new york you know it was wild it was it was really cool yeah so now now this the, the era we're going to be talking about next is is more like what i'm familiar with you like i had seen you guys in dead of the world but i didn't really know any of you guys personally until like the early 2000s so I, if I remember correctly, did you move to Rochester for, for graduate school or? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So once I was, so the University of Buffalo, you got to remember that time period that this was. 1997 was basically the first time any person got a home computer. Like a home computer was like this new thing. And it was like Windows 95. It was rough. But, you know, if you were lucky, you had a computer in your dorm room. If you weren't, you were like going to the computer lab to send an email. So computers were new. Uh, so I went to school for art, uh, for fine art, thinking that I wanted to be part of the graphic design or filmmaking aspect of art. Uh, but they weren't capable of giving me that like they they were a fine art school, they weren't into the computer field yet. Number one, because it was so new. And number two, like they just weren't ready for that yet. So I learned how to be an artist at UB. I learned how to think like an artist, but I had no, I didn't know the software yet. I didn't, I wasn't capable to put it into, you know, real world scenario. I couldn't go out and get a job in my personal opinion in the field that I wanted to be in. So I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology as a graduate school because I thought, okay, these dudes are going to teach me how to like use this software because that's like what they do best, a technical school. And they were so like widely known for being a great school. So, and I also thought like I could stay in the hardcore scene up here, you know, and keep, keep this going. So after Buffalo, I moved to Rochester to go mainly to go to school. Um, and that's where I met like a slew of new friends, um, mostly, you know, uh, all, like all the guys who are part of the app, the, the place that we called the app, your apartment, Rob's apartment, Vinnie Minervino's apartment, Brian Alton's apartment. Um, that was like a kickoff to this whole another era of time for me in terms of music. Because at that point, Death of the World was totally over with, or at least me and Rob were out of it. Um, and I was ready to do music in a different world. Yeah. And one thing I want to say that I actually meant to mention earlier is when you were talking about like shows and like early on when you first got into the scene and you would go to Buffalo more than Rochester. Now I'm sure some people older than me will probably disagree with this, but I think from like 95 to like 97, 98, there wasn't nearly as much going on in Rochester for hardcore as like pretty much any other era. Like once John 25 started booking a lot of shows and then I started booking a ton of shows, mm -hmm. you know, not to like give us all the credit. Cause obviously there were still bands here. But that's when shows started happening regularly. And, and obviously you moved back here or here around that time too. I 100% agree. I distinctly remember my last year or so in Buffalo coming over to Rochester to see shows a lot because, and I, I mean this with my entire heart, the Rochester Harker scene is unparalleled. During that time period, there was nothing like it. Like it felt like home to anyone who came there. Like I'm talking like the Stanfast days, the the oh god who else who are the other big bands building on fire the disaster yes Stanfast, building on fire the disaster all those bands like it was it was such a welcoming environment and every single show had this like 
energy about it that was unparalleled. Like no one had that. Buffalo didn't have it. It was something very special about Rochester. And I feel like it was the Rochester kids. Like the Rochester kids are are a little softer than the Buffalo kids. You know what I mean? Like there's a reason why the word buffle buffle thug, I think it was people would say. There's a reason why the word buffle thug existed. Because the kids were just harder in Buffalo for some reason. And the Rochester kids had a lot more like indie rock emo influences and they brought that into their hardcore and they brought that into their scene as well. And I remember showing up to like shows at Ellison Park and it was just like this beautiful heartwarming party, but also heavy music at the same time. It was wild. And that really influenced me to come to Rochester as well. I'm not going to say all the nice people in here is all due to Rory Van Gerl, but I do think like Rory is like one of the nicest, most genuine people that was around here at the time. And like him and I would talk about it all the time, like make it a point to like introduce yourself to people that you've never seen at a show before. I remember like my old roommate, uh, you, I don't know if you remember him, my old roommate, PD, PD. Um, I introduced myself to him at a show one time and I talked to him for like five minutes. And then we, we became uh, roommates like four months later. And I remember asking him about that. And he was like, yeah, I thought you were a fucking weirdo for coming to me and talking to me like that. <laughs> I wonder if everybody thought that, but we were just like trying to like make people feel welcome and like they belonged here. Cause like when you first get it to show, it's overwhelming, you know? It definitely showed, man. It was such a welcoming place. Like you would show up for one show and you'd be, you'd feel like you were home. It was great. Yeah. And that's, uh, and, and again, to touch on that and not to give us a huge pat on the back, but I, when I talked to the Build Down Fire guys for their episode a couple months back, like I said that to Matt Wirtz, I was like, I really feel like the time and place when we were doing all this stuff, like I've never seen anything like it anywhere else. Like, yeah, there's been good scenes and communities, but like, you know, not to put us on that big of a pedestal, but like we had like, I mean, there was arguments and bickering and and bullshit, but like things were really good here for a couple of years, like really good, you know, and people wanted to come here. Like that's another thing you see now with tours, like bands don't come through this area nearly as much. Like they made it a point to stop here all the time. Yeah. They were, they were the greatest shows I think I've ever been to. And Jimmy Stat even referred to like bands that weren't from Rochester as Rochester bands when I interviewed him. You know what I mean? There was bands like uh, I can name like literally like ten bands like Bane, Majority Rule, you know, and a bunch more that like sure. these. It felt like they were from here because they got such a crazy response here, and we're like this small city, you know. Yeah. So um, now we're talking about the Apt, which is a, an apartment that we all lived on on the corner of Rutgers and Monroe, and. One of our roommates at the time, who's still one of my good friends to this day, and I'm guessing yours too, uh, Brian Ellerton. Uh, Love that guy. You ended up playing in a band with him. Uh, and, I, and that was another one that we, we had to kind of remind ourselves of tonight. So let's talk about that for a little bit, though, because that was fun. That was a fun era. That was really unique. Yeah. So basically, the day after I met Brian, we were like best friends. <laughs> me, me and Brian are like, like brothers. Um, so we really wanted to do a band together. Brian is a drummer. Um, so as soon as I moved to town, Rob was like, you gotta start a band with this guy. And I'm like, absolutely. We need to start a band together. So we somehow formed a band. I don't remember exactly how we got the other two guys, but the other two guys are brothers. It's Todd and Scott Stahl. So I'm sure we got one of them and the other one came along with them. Um, and somehow, and I really don't remember how this came to be, we started an acoustic rock band. <laughs> I don't know how, or I don't know why, but it was awesome. Uh, so it was very influenced by like all that indie rock stuff that I liked in high school, like 
Texas is the reason, Kill Switch, but very influenced by uh, like Dashboard Confessional because that was kind of a big thing at that time too. Um, so we, you know, would get together at Todd Stahl's like mom's basement and and practice every week, and we had this fun little band together, and it was basically like a way for us friends to hang out and and have some fun creative outlet. But I, I fell in love with that band. And I think we, I think we skipped or glossed over the name. Sincerely yours uh, was that, was that project. Yes. Now this, I know the era because I booked a couple of shows for you guys. This is like late 2001, uh, sometime in 2002 mainly, right? You guys were doing yes, that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I don't know for sure, Todd or Rob would be able to, to tell us more, but I want to say you guys might've gotten the stalls in the band because maybe Rob knew Todd because I want to say Todd was working at Lake or not Lake Shore, uh, Fantastic Records back then. Uh, I could be totally yes. wrong on that. No, but. that's exactly right. That's how, that's how it happened. He's like, I know this guy from Fantastic Records. He's really into music. Yeah. You know, maybe he could be part of your band. And some, I don't know when it happened, but Rob and Todd lived together in an apartment. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the band was existed before that or after that. Oh, that's a little fuzzy to me because yeah. it's been so long. But and then I moved in like directly below those guys in the same apartment building. So we would have like Monday Night Raw nights together. Um, but Sincerely Yours was was wonderful. It was like such a cool experience and such like a, a total departure from everything I was playing up until then. And yeah, we got some crazy shows. Yeah. You had, we opened for Coheed and Cambria, <laughs> which I guess was, was your doing. I don't even remember. To this day, that's still that and, and one other show are the two biggest shows I ever booked. But yeah, I, I, put, I put that one on. That was the Penny Arcade. You guys, them, arm's length. I think Delta Force yeah. 23 is probably on the bill too. That seems like that would have yep. been a lineup. That sounds exactly right. Um, but just one of those like time and place, like special moments, you know, like that. I mean, I could tell the whole story about that show. I will on another podcast when, when Dustin's on here. Cause that, there was like a lot going on at that time, obviously. What a beautiful um, moment that was. And that was like when that first Coheed album came out and everyone was in love with it and playing it all the time. And I got to play with this crazy band. I remember thinking like, is Coheed backstage like think, thinking, is there an acoustic rock band playing right, right now? What the hell's going on? I've referenced this quite a few times on here, but I, I love telling this story. I still remember the owner of the Penny Arcade, Joe, I don't know what his last name was, but he was more of like a hard rock, like butt rock type dude or whatever. And he even had like a guitar and a practice amp in the office. Like I, and he never liked any of the bands we booked. Like he would always ask me to bring sick of it all the time because he knew they would draw, but he never mm -hmm. wanted to see any of the bands that I booked. However, at that Coheed and Cambria show, his eyes were like, like to the floor basically. Like, and I go up to him like, everything okay, man? He's like, dude, the lead singer sounds just like the singer from Rush. This oh, band's awesome. Yeah. And he was like <laughs> so stoked. And like people who have went to the pancake will hear the voice that I'm doing. Like his voice was that high pitched like all the time. But when yeah. he talked to me that night, it was even more high pitched because he was so stoked. And obviously after that Coheed show, it was like any, anytime he talked to me, dude, can we bring those guys back? Can we bring them back? And I'm like, dude, they're, they wouldn't even fit in the Penny Arcade now. Yeah, they're so much bigger now. They got big so fast, and rightfully yeah. so. Those, 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 that band is brilliant. Now, I had kind of started talking about you doing the website in the beginning of the podcast, and we don't have to go over too much. It's just something that's cool for me to think about that. And, and throughout all this stuff and preparing for this interview, I was like, oh, you know, in addition to the fact that you and I like rode to a couple shows together, like Shy Hulud or whatever, like you also were designing my website for a little while, which... I think I might've had two people design it before you, but then either Rob said something or you might've even said it yourself. But I will say like, before you did it, and this goes back to you talking about like, 
learning how to be an artist before a designer. You were the first person to do my, my website that actually was like an artist and actually like looking at it artistically. And I don't have like the designs that you had still saved because I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not like the most sentimental person when it comes to that stuff. Sometimes I wish I was so I could show you now and you could look at it and be like, oh shit, you know? But I do remember at the time, I only ended up having one other person design it after you. And up until that point, I was like, man, you know, I think your schedule was just like busy. You were going to school and stuff, you know, but sure. it was, it was cool. So I guess my question is like, is this around the time, like 2002 ish, where you started doing more stuff like that or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so first off, thank you for, for the kind words that I was definitely really into web design because I thought it was fascinating that you could make something and put it up and everyone in the world could see it like that blew my mind like this little design that i made someone in japan could be looking at it right now so i was intrigued by that um and i really wanted to get into web design and graphic design so at school now when i'm gonna take a step back to high school when people talk about college they always made it seem like well when you go to college you can take any class you want you don't have to do math and science and english and all that is totally bullshit. it's a hundred percent bullshit. you still have to go through all these hoops that you had to go through in high school so in my head i was like oh when i go to college i'm going to learn web design and graphic design and video and all this and it just doesn't work like that. You have to get into a department and learn their curriculum. And that's, that's where you're kind of stuck. So when I went to Rochester Institute of Technology, I chose to go into the graphic design department, not realizing like that cut me off from all video and cut me off from all web. Like it was, I was barely going to get any of those things. I was really going to just learn interactive design. So the way I learned how to web design, and I think this is a good lesson for anyone listening. I'm sure the tools are very different now. I used to work in a movie theater and I would always take the popping shifts, which is basically like someone needs to make this popcorn. Uh, so you would take an eight hour shift where you'd sit in the popcorn room and just watch popcorn pop and do that for eight hours straight. Extremely boring job. But I always took those shifts because I would take the manual for Adobe. I think they called it Adobe Go Live at the time, which is basically like a web design piece of software and I would just read the manual and that's how I learned how to do web design just you know going at it <laughs> and then I'd go home and I'd try the things out that I learned during my popping shift and it would be like blow my mind and because I was learning on my own once I got like a teacher to teach me I'd be like oh wow that's how you do that or oh wow like I was doing that all wrong the whole way but i like i understood the concept of it and i was already had my hands dirty so it was like oh i just got to fix a couple like bad habits and i'm and i'm like way farther than i would be if i didn't put the effort in so that's how i learned web design and and just doing you know free things for friends also helped out too because it got me like some real world experience and cut to 2021 i'm still doing web design for clients you know i'm picturing though as somebody who more have my career as like a restaurant manager i'm picturing like a busy friday night and i'm prepping for like fucking home alone 2 coming out or something you know and i'm like yo we need like 40 bags of popcorn stock this shit up right now get everybody get where's gargula where's the fucking popcorn and we go back there and it's like overflowing it's all burnt and you're sitting in the corner reading this manual like hey figure out how to do this thing on adobe live today <laughs> it's like a cartoon things are on fire 
No, nah, man. I, 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 I was good at making popcorn, too. <laughs> oh, nah, I, a lot of, there's a lot of fun things about movie theaters that I learned working at one. They have popcorn pop for the entire week. There's no way that on Saturday night rolls around, they're making popcorn for you. It's, it's, there's huge bags like waiting in the back. That's insane. Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, well, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I mean, we'll get more into design later, I feel like, because it's kind of like, like you said, yeah, like, yeah. there's more with that to talk about. Um, sincerely, yours was unfortunately pretty short-lived. I wish it, it lasted longer because um, it was just so fun and just so interesting. But, you know, it, it, all good things come to an end. Yeah, and like we were saying in the beginning, it's just crazy. You you basically have built like a, I mean, I guess you could say of most of your bands, but like with that one, you've built like a lifelong relationship out of people that a oh. lot of you didn't know before, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like, that's the most positive thing that can come out of making music in the hardcore scene is is you you eventually get like these lifelong friends that I still talk to Brian all the time. I see him all the time. Still talk to Todd, still talk to Rob. Like they're, they're some, they're my friends for life. So yeah, but the next band that I was telling you beforehand, and I really do feel like this, I feel like Taken by the Burning is probably one of the more underrated Rochester bands. Like I, I think there was a lot of bands around that era that came out just a couple years too early. But I also think, with all due respect to our local scene, like, if you weren't from Fairport, I feel like you might not have gotten as much recognition as some of the Fairport bands. And I do feel like if you guys came from Fairport, it might have been a little different. But uh, uh, Agreed, agreed. Yeah, Fairport was, like, your key to success because you instantly had a following if you were from there. Yeah, and it's, it's not nothing against those kids because, obviously, there were some really good bands that came from that scene, but it, it, it's something I noticed, you know? There were great bands, but they just instantly had a following. I, I feel the same way about every time I die from Buffalo. Their very first show, they had a hundred kids there going buck wild. I mean, that's not practical. It's because they had this built-in fan base from yeah. where they're from. Yeah. So, and I guess you mentioning every time I die in Buffalo is a is another good reference point for Taken by the Burning because you had uh, done some college in Buffalo, and then your vocalist uh, Jesse Stanick is actually from Buffalo. And and what was oh, he going God. to school here at the time? Yeah, he was going to some Christian university with the other two members that came that eventually got into Taken by the Burning. So the, the Christian university, I forget the name of it, in Rochester, had like their own like mini hardcore scene, basically, like all the all the music kids kind of knew each other from there. So once and I knew Jesse from Buffalo. So once we teamed up, he's like, oh, and I know this guy. Oh, and I know this guy. So we kind of got like a band together very, very quickly because he already had like all these connections from his college. Um, but Taken by the Burning was such a unique band. And I feel like that was positive and negative for a lot of people. Like some people loved us and some people hated us because uh, it was weird. I mean, it was it was the band that I finally got to sit down and just write whatever the hell I wanted. Um, I remember writing in time signatures that I didn't even understand, but it, it's on it's on the album. You know, it's like, I, I was just writing like the weirdest stuff I could think of. My choruses were breakdowns. My, my intros were like in five, seven or some bizarro time signature. And, and all those dudes like embraced it. And we were all from like such different war, like, niches of hardcore that it was like this cool melting pot of ideas so like i had my own weirdo style jesse was way more into like straight up hardcore so he brought that the other two guys uh dane and uh nick 
Dane and Nick were from like kind of the emo scene, so they brought that. Jamie was really into like refused kind of bands, so he brought all that. So all these like weird styles, like just clashing and mixing to make Taken by the Burning what it was. And I will say that Jesse's definitely like one of the nicer people that I've ever met. And I never liked, and this is totally unrelated to this band because you guys obviously didn't sound like them, but we've already talked about Biohazard once or twice in this interview. Uh, bands like that and Stigmata, I never really liked as like a teenager or a young adult. And then around like 2009, I was getting ready to travel like cross country and go back to Denver for a little while. And he came and visited like, to, like for like a send off type thing. And he, he like, or maybe he just, either way, he gave me a bunch of songs on my iPod that I didn't have before. And it was like the Biohazard catalog, mm -hmm. one of the first Stigmata LPs. And those are like some of my favorite bands now. Like, I don't know why the fuck I didn't listen to those bands. Like, because <laughs> all these yeah. bands, like No Warning, 25 to Life, like they take so many cues from those bands, you know? And those bands are fucking great, you know? So shout out to Jesse for introducing me to all this tough guy stuff that he probably didn't even realize. God, Jesse's another one of those lifelong friends, like one of the best human beings that I know of. Well, you sorry, mentioned man. you mentioned an Under Oath show that we played, and you did book that show, and that blows me away because I just saw Under Oath for like the hundredth time at Furnace Fest, and they're like this enormous band now. So another crazy band I got to open for. I distinctly remember that show because you know what winters are like in Western New York. They were so super delayed, like Taken by the Burning played. And then it was like four hours before they showed up. And you kept coming on the mic and being like, yo, they say they're like an hour away, but there's a huge snowstorm out. If everyone wants to leave, I'll give you refunds. You can leave. And everyone was like, no, nah, we'll stay. And like an hour later, you do the same announcement. And by the time it was like midnight, they rolled up and kicked our asses. They went, but, went off. I'm not, I, 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 I wasn't super familiar with that band until that point, but kids went off that night, dude. Like, and you're that band is nuts. I forgot all about that. And if I don't have the flyer in front of me, but that was either March or April. So that just shows you how long the storms can, can still persist here. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's rough up there with those, those snowstorms. Yeah. Now, I, don't, I feel like there wasn't too much recorded output for Taken by the Burning either, right? No, we did one like three-song EP in some dude's like house. I remember distinctly remember he recorded it using video software, using sure. Vegas video, which blew me away. But, you know, I didn't know anything about recording at the time. Um, and it was all like, like kind of live. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a, it was a down and dirty recording. We did in like three days, but I, I absolutely love the music that we put out. And, and that music kind of paved the way for music that I made in the future. Like I remember using a couple of, those songs that never made it anywhere in future albums. Yeah, we'll talk more off air about about uh, where if you have the access to those Taken by the Burning songs, because if they're not already like online, like, I definitely think oh. more people should hear them. Oh, I got them. Yeah. <laughs> I got them. I definitely got them. Whether we put them on with this episode or just make sure we, we can put up a link to them online, because I definitely think people should hear that band. And all due respect to all your other bands, too, obviously. But like a lot more of those bands like people know about, like I feel like Taken by the Burning, like people like you were you weren't around very long you know what i mean what, yeah what, i think I, yeah i think because we were so short-lived like yeah. maybe that's that had a, a problem we never put out a real like full-blown album or anything like that so yeah i think if we were around for a few years it might have yeah taken off i as, of all the bands in rochester like i'm sure if i rack my brain i could think of other ones but like off the top of my head like that's one of the first ones i could think of that like 
if they, you guys could have like stuck the course and done like an LP or like a release, like, and people found out about you guys. And, you, and again, you were like right before I feel like that kind of music started really blowing up. Like, mm-hmm. I think people would have, would have, would have been more hip to it, you know? Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. So you've, uh, you've referenced Shy Halud earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I feel like that's the band that you were a part of that people would probably be most familiar with. Oh my God. Yeah. The beast that is Shai Halud. So when I was in Rochester, so somehow, some way dead to the world always end up playing shows with Shai Halud. Uh, so we were like boys with those guys. We, every time we'd see them, you know, we, we'd hang out, we, we were friends. Um, so when it came time for their new tour, which was right around the, the time that I was graduating college, they didn't have anyone to play guitar except for Matt Fox who runs that band. Um, now, I don't know if people know this, but Shai Hulud has is notorious for coming together and falling apart and coming together and falling apart. It's like this thing, this rotating thing, rotating members, constantly rotating members. So they just made a bunch of calls. They went, th- they made this enormous list of people that they knew and liked and went through the list and eventually got to me. And I was like, fuck yes. <laughs> like, they're like, can you, do you want to be in our band? Do you want to go on tour with us? And I was like, uh, yeah. So number one, I, I love you guys. You're, you're awesome people. And then number two, your music is insane. And number three, like people go nuts at your shows. So yes, on all fronts, but I'm in, uh, I'm, I'm in graduate school. So I had to like pull some strings to get all my work done early and graduate early so that I could go on this summer tour. So I did all that and I show up for tour and in my head, I know the songs are hard. You know, the music is crazy, but I wasn't prepared for what this band was. So when I show up, and I, I, I will say that Shai Hulud's music is the most insane music I have ever played in my life. I mean, it is so difficult. It doesn't sound that difficult, but number one, it's like the craziest things that your hands have to do. Number two, there's like never a moment that repeats. Number three, there's like crazy transitions left and right. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So it was like, a week until tour was about to like get in the van and go start playing shows. So it was like crash course with Matt Fox, who was like the, the godfather of, of Shai Hulud that whole week. So I had to learn like the craziest songs I've ever had to play in a, in one week's time. They were not happy with me that I showed up not knowing it. But now that I think back, there's no way I could have ever figured out how to play these songs on my own. I would have been playing them totally wrong anyway. So I show up, we learn all the songs together that everyone comes from wherever they were in the world to practice their singer lived in like the netherlands the drummer lived in chicago like it was this crazy situation that i've never seen before so we all come together we practice for a week we get our shit together to go on tour with the haunted an entire u.s tour with the haunted so it was like the coolest opportunity of my life at that point. But it was like, it was scary as shit. Cause I'm like playing these real deal shows with like thousands and thousands of people. Uh, so it was a wild ride. Did you get a chance? I, I've, I've talked on here when I, whenever I interview people like Scott Vogel or anybody who's been to Europe, like, did you get a chance to do the European festival circuit with Shai Hulud at all? No. So that never happened. Basically we did an entire U S tour with the haunted and then we did, Hellfest in Syracuse, 
which I want to talk about in a little bit because that was golden. Yeah. Um, um, tell me the tour. Th- tell me a little bit more about the tour at the Haunted first, though. Right. So playing with the Haunted was amazing. At that point, I only ha- knew like a little bit about them. Um, and it was, so it was the Haunted Cataclysm, which was like this death metal band bleeding through, which became a lot bigger after that tour. But they're kind of like a straight up hardcore kind of hardcore metalcore kind of band. And I, I forget who else played the tour, but we were basically direct support for Shihalu, for for the haunt of the entire time. And it was it was a wild experience for so many reasons. Number one, I got to see all these cities that I would never have been able to see any other way. Like literally, I would have never been to you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota on my own. It was just been possible as like a, a poor college kid. So I got to see all the entire US, which was amazing. Number two, I got to play these insane shows that I would have never gotten to play with any other band. Number three, like kids go buck wild at Shy Hulud shows. We played Florida, which is where they're from. I could I lost count of the amount of kids who would fly past me and jump off the stage. It was just crazy sauce every single show so it was just wild to play that and then number number four i I got like a lot of a crash course in how to be a professional musician from the haunted because they they're on a whole different level like their their tone their sound the way they play everything about them is just like this whole other level i was used to like hardcore kids being crazy and jumping around and like being a little sloppy they were like so on point every single show and so it was wild to see that it was like such an eye-opening experience and we were so i don't know how the tour even happened we were so different that me and jensen the guitar player from the haunted would would mess with each other a lot and he would always make fun of the fact that we would jump around a lot so i was like shy halut's thing constantly like moving and jumping and i would make fun of him for being so stoic i remember one show i got him to jump on stage and it was because he always wore these like crazy boots and he's a huge like swedish dude so i got him to jump once just one big jump <laughs> on stage with his like enormous les paul now i'm guessing the Hellfest you guys played must have been 2003 because that's the only Syracuse one I didn't go to and I don't remember seeing you play in Shai Halu. That sounds about right. Yeah, it would have been one of the two fairgrounds ones, right? Yes. So Hellfest in Syracuse at the fairgrounds was the golden era of hardcore to me. Like, there was nothing better than that. Those shows were just flawless they were amazing it was like every single hardcore kid in the world would show up to that and have a great time see these insane bands it was just like back to back to back amazing music it was it was stunning so to be able to play a hellfest before it like shut down and moved to jersey was is such an honor and it was wild to play because we were like pretty far up in the bill and it was just like a thousand people in front of me yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I remember the year before, which again, I'm guessing it was 2003 you guys played, you played with them, because in 2002, uh, I remember Matt Dunn called or emailed me like two days before, and he was like, I got Building on Fire a slot if they still want to play, which of oh, course. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I rolled up with them. I remember whoever handed us our, our, our stickers like in, in the van when we were pulling up, and it, was, it just felt like the coolest thing. Like, like, I never played in any bands, but it was like four or five years after like going to my first like Syracuse Fest, it just kind of felt validating, like being in the van 
and getting handed a Hellfest like official sticker, which I still have like upstairs somewhere. It says like it was big time. It was a big time thing. Yeah. And then like Hellfest, like now looking back on it, like I would say like Hellfest and maybe like two or three other fests in the US were like the most influential hardcore fest. Like look at like this is hardcore fest and all these other hardcore fests now. Like they're all definitely directly influenced by that fest. This is hardcore fest is just Hellfest 2.0. That's all that's all it is. Yeah. Which so, is great because Hellfest was was amazing. Yeah, and it, it definitely introduced a lot of people to hardcore too. So, is there anything else you want to uh, dig into with Shyhalud or like playing uh, Hellfest or any of those big shows? Um, no, I think eventually, you know, Shyhalud fell apart again, and I went my separate ways. Uh, at that point, I knew I wanted to get into. I wanted to get a job in the field that I, I went to school for. So I immediately moved back to Brooklyn as soon as that band was over. I, I think I moved to Brooklyn while that band was happening. So I already had like a place set up. I was already there. So once that band ended, I was like, okay, here, here comes the job hunt. Now that's what I was going to ask you. Actually, you're kind of leading into it. Me, uh, obviously as someone who didn't really mess with uh, schooling too much, like I never really like, actively pursued a career like to the point where i would be like you know like putting a resume together and like going to like look for like an act like you're talking about like so were you doing all this like in shy like while you're on tour or like did you kind of realize no so so basically with shy i was a hired gun so they were paying me to play the shows uh very very little but in my head i was like i'm gonna let shy run its course before I try to do anything else. Cause I just want to do this as long as I can while I'm young, like, you know, take advantage of this opportunity while it exists. So until that ended, I didn't even care about a job. I didn't even think about a job. If that lasted years, I would have just kept doing it. Um, I think a lot of things that people don't realize who aren't in bands is those dudes are poor. Like they're, that was a rough time in everyone's life. Like we all lived in this one like shitty house and it was like, no one had any money. It was rough. Like in order to, to be this band, they had to make a ton of sacrifices in their life. And I, I question that maybe they're still making sacrifices to do shy. I really don't know, but it was, it was a rough life for, the effort of doing Shyhalud. So I knew it would end eventually. And when it, when it ended, that's when I was like, okay, now it's time to move on. But I didn't put any eggs into the moving on basket until it was totally done. Well, so then real quick, before we jump into the next uh, chapter of your life, were you ever technically living in Poughkeepsie, New York then? No, but every time there was like a tour or a show, I would live there for like two weeks before oh. the show happened. Yeah. So I would drive up, we'd practice for two weeks, everyone would come in from all over the place live there like i'd sleep on the couch for like two weeks and then we'd go off on tour and then when tour was over with i'd go back home yeah i always thought it was really strange that that like he relocated there for however long he did or if he still is like because i never really Poughkeepsie just doesn't seem like i guess you are an hour away from new york city at that point so that part of it makes sense i guess but other than that like i can't really think of why you'd want to i have no idea why i ended up in poughkeepsie but that's where it was yeah, well, I guess we'll save that for if I ever interview Matt Fox on here. <laughs> um, I mean, Shai Halud is the Matt Fox project, you know, like yeah. he's the father of that band. Like the band just goes wherever he goes. He lives in Philly now. So now the band's from Philly, you know, it's like 
it revolves around him. I will say too, uh, spoiler alert, if uh, my buddy Jim that I'm doing the episode with also uh, votes high enough, one, I definitely want to put a Shai Lutz on the top 50 breakdowns. I have a couple in mind. Um, they definitely had a lot of good mosh parts. So obviously a band like that should be on uh, a top 50 breakdowns episode, I feel like. But uh, one, one quick thing I will say about doing an episode like that is you think putting 50 breakdowns together sounds like it's a lot, but once you start doing it, you're like, holy oh. shit. We have, like a, we have like 125, I think we've stopped that. And I still have like two more record labels that I kind of want to like go through their catalog to make sure we didn't miss anything. So I could imagine I could come up with a hundred very easily. And you would probably come up with like a hundred different ones. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, probably. To it, it's going to be like a different idea of like what you want. You know what I mean? I so, will tell you uh, for your edification, when we played Set Your Body Ablaze, kids would go buck wild. For some reason, that song would like light a fire. That that's definitely one of the songs I'm thinking of. And then they did a split with Indecision on uh, Crisis or Revelation. The first song on there, I forget what it's called, but that's got a fucking hard breakdown too. So that that's the one that I was thinking of. But Set Your Body Ablaze, when they played that here and Hellfest 2002, it was mm-hmm. one of the best. And that's what I was going to say too. When they played here the first time, like kids went crazy. You know what yeah. I mean? It was like you were at like a Bane or a Stanfest show and all like Rory, all those dudes were going nuts for Shia Lu too. It was, it was definitely like, I had been into that band, but then like seeing Shia Lu live, especially back then was like, Oh my God. Back then it was like full on energy for 45 minutes straight. Like yeah. every piece of energy we gave to the crowd, they would give it right back to us. It was just a wild experience. Yeah. I can just imagine walking off stage, especially like a summer festival, just being like covered in sweat in a band oh like God. that. You know? It was it was so fun. Yeah. So now, like you were saying, you had already kind of relocated to Brooklyn. And you got, you kind of decided to start like looking for a career after that. Like I know from when I've like talked to you and, and, and kind of almost came to visit you when I was traveling cross country that you were doing some stuff with Victoria's Secret. Like, mm-hmm. was that like one of the first gigs you got or like kind of take me through like how you how you got all these like different projects or whatever? Yeah, so when you when you get out of co- college, you think it's going to be easy to get a job, and it absolutely was not at all. Um, so it took a lot of effort, and a lot of it went nowhere. Um, the way I got my job was my RIT NTID connection. Uh, RIT Rochester Institute, Rochester Institute of Technology, and NTID is their national school for the deaf or something like that um because i used to work there as a web designer um so i sent a resume in and the girl who got the resume her sister worked at rit so we had this like weird connection so she's like i'll interview this kid and like i said like it was kind of computer stuff was kind of early at that point so they didn't have a graphics guy at all they were a video company doing commercial work and had zero graphics people. So I was hired to be the one graphics guy, like this new idea. Um, Cause up until then they were farming out to like a really expensive company. So their idea was let's get this guy in house um, and we'll be able to produce all this great graphics work in house. Uh, also, when you graduate from college, you think you're gonna get a lot of money because you have this like degree and that was not the case either. I pretty much started at entry level money for not an entry level job, but I was just willing to get my foot in the door. And I'm very happy that I did because it was just a wonderful place to work. And I worked there for like 20 years or something crazy. Uh, Place is called Moondog. Uh, It changed its name to Carousel recently, but it was called Moondog for forever. Um, So I got hired to be the graphics guy for 
all their clients. Uh, Victoria's Secret was a huge client of theirs. Neutrogena was a huge client of theirs. And then there was like a bunch of other smaller-ish clients. Um, so I've worked on a ton of like really, really big name clients during my time there. Um, I started out as a graphics guy and then I moved to being a assistant video editor and then I moved to being a full video editor and then I moved to being a senior video editor with clients asking to work with me all the time. But it took like a long time to get there. It took like 10 plus years to get to that point. But it was a really great job and uh, I did it for a long time. Now going back to the to the popcorn pop and I, I ha always had this image in my head which I know is definitely not the case of you editing these Victoria's Secret like ads and commercials and stuff and like models are just like walking by you like like in lingerie uh, and stuff uh, like you're doing a good job with that like I'm sure that was never the case but for some reason like right you know, no I mean a lot of people don't understand the process so that totally makes sense yeah a lot of it was we our company did everything after it was shot so there'd be a shoot somewhere off like in LA or in some amazing location with a director and like a crew. And then we would just get the footage back in New York and use the footage to make something cool. Yeah. That, that's so, no, unfortunately, cool. unfortunately I never met Andrew Lima, but <laughs> maybe there's always the future. That was honestly what I really thought was the case, but I, in my head, I'm just picturing like, man, it would be so cool if he's just sitting there and they're like walking by and stuff. Every once in a while, I got to meet some crazy people though. Like, there was a project we were doing for HBO about porn stars. And I got to meet, uh, what's her name? Morgan, something Morgan. Really popular porn, really popular porn star came to the office once and I got to meet her. So that would be, yeah. that's probably the biggest celebrity I ever met. Katie I Morgan. Could, I could name Jenna Jameson. And then uh, right, right. I could say Evan Seinfeld, but I don't know. That's probably not his porn name. So I don't know what his name is. The dude from Biohazard. <laughs> you know, oh, right, 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 right. No, Katie, Katie Morgan was the girl who came to the office. Well, now now, we're, now everyone's going to be going to look at her old videos after they listen to this episode. Yeah, it's, it's something, boy. Oh, man. So you've done some some other cool like work stuff and you have other cool stuff coming up. But do you kind of want to stick with the timeline of like bands and stuff first and then talk about that stuff or? Yeah, let's let's stick with the, the timeline. Um, so being in New York City, uh, I wanted to eventually once I got like my footing and I was, you know, working, I wanted to do music again. So I started to dabble into music production, uh, you know, ma basically making my own albums at home. Uh, that was kind of the beginning of like home studios. Now home studios are a very common thing, but that was like the very beginning, like Pro Tools on your computer was like a brand new thing. So I was like really dabbling in that. The Line 6 was releasing their pods, which is like amp modeling software or amp modeling hardware. So that was a big thing. Uh, so I was dabbling in all of that and just kind of spilling my creativity out into this band that eventually got called The Only Weapon. So like all this music got culminated into a band called The Only Weapon, and it was just me. Um, so eventually, once I had enough music together, I was like, okay, I want to I make this a real band, like real people, real, real shows. So I got a band together, and we started playing shows, we started writing music together, and it was it was great. But New York City is a very difficult place to be in a band. Uh, sick of it all makes it look real easy, but it's not. Um, number one, everything's super expensive. Uh, it's hard to get anywhere. So like going to practice is like an hour on the train and an hour back. Uh, getting shows is really difficult. Uh, every, 
I think the biggest hurdle was there's a hundred things happening on any night all over the place. So it's like, who the hell is going to show up to your little like local gig when they can go up the street and do that or go over there and do that? You know, so there's, there's just too much happening for a music scene to flourish. So there really wasn't any like solid music scene, at least in my eyes, that I ever saw. They were very, very small and it was very segmented. It was nothing like Western New York. Um, so the band had just a lot of like troubles. Uh, a lot of people in New York, they have like their own thing going on. They don't dedicate their whole time to being in a band or 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 any specific hobby. So we would lose people all the time, replace them. It was just this revolving door of people in the band. Eventually, you know, it came to an end. Um, I would say round one of The Only Weapon came to an end. And I was so... I was so upset that we put so much time and effort into it. I wanted to make something with it. So I made a full length album on my own and put a ton of effort into it. And it turned out beautiful. It's like one of my favorite things I ever made, but it took like a lot of determination to make that. But once I had that in my hands, once I had that thing made, I was like, oh, this could be like a thing. So the only weapon has just been my thing from here on out. It's like my Guns N' Roses. You know, it's like Axl Rose owns Guns N' Roses. I own the only weapon. It's it's like anything that comes out of my brain and my hands is in that brand and it exists forever, no matter what version of it, it becomes. So there were years later after that full length came out that I got the band back together again. I got like a whole bunch of a new crew and we played and made new music together for a handful of years and then it would fall apart again and then it would just be back to me again. So I feel like that's just what that band is going to be like uh, forever, you know? Do you ever see like, because you're telling me the story now, all I can think of is parallels between that and Shai Halud. Like, did yeah, you- it's very similar to that. Now, yeah. now that I, I see it, yeah, it's totally similar to that. Like, yeah, I mean, it's once you start dealing with like full blown adults, it's very difficult to get anyone to commit to do this thing full time with you. Because number one, it's like, well, I have a job. I can't just like leave, uh, you know, or I have kids or I have this girlfriend who's bugging me. I got to be home. You know, like there's so many hurdles to to do music that it kind of has to become a hobby and it can no longer become this 21 year old at college, you know, doing it all the time kind of thing. Yeah, man. Now that I'm 40 and have two kids, especially young kids, like just like I've referenced that show twice already on here, but going to that show last Friday, I almost didn't make it. Um, On top of that, like while I'm there, I'm just thinking about like my girlfriend and my kids at home the whole time, you know? So it's like, you try to have fun and enjoy it. But like, now that we're older, there's just so many other things to worry about. And then like the whole like aspect of like what, what we used to do when we were younger with like moshing and stage diving, like forget about that now. You know, I (laughs) I see people my age doing it now, but like they weren't like, I don't know how much you know about this, but like they weren't thrown from a car two and a half years ago. You know what I mean? Like, I, uh, like I can't get, I can't, I shouldn't really be anywhere near a pit. You know what I mean? Like I went to a show last month and like my arm, like one of the injuries that I have from this car accident, like it, it, like from that show, it started hurting again. And it like just stopped hurting now. And it was like six weeks ago. You know what I mean? Like, so. Hey man, join, join the old guys crew in the back, just watching yeah. the band play. That's what I usually do. But it's just sometimes like, it's so weird, man. Like that was, that was probably like only like my second or third hardcore show going to after having like 
broken all these bones, but like, I haven't been to very many since COVID either. And it's like, even despite all that, like you just, ha- it's like second nature. You know what I mean? Like you're just so used to doing these things that like a band covers hate breed and I'm like right there, like, yeah. basically, like not basically literally, you know, like, and like, it's just so it's just you're so used to certain things i have to like literally tell myself now you can you have to stand over here you have to do this you have to do that like you know oh boy i haven't been in a pit in a very very long time it's okay (laughs) i i i I don't expect to and i most of the shows i've been to i stay away but yeah uh, a local band covering hatred it's hard you know (laughs) literally yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i get that um what else now are you're saying with only weapon like do you have stuff that you're working on currently on on yourself with it or is like yeah yeah so the only weapon is still alive and well just only in my hands so the only weapon had a full length come out like way back in 2003 then we had an ep come out when we were a full band i just released another full length album 100 percent on my own came out this year in in the in april i put out a single in the summer I put out a, a Metallica cover song just now, like a few weeks ago. Uh, so my my thing now is I've, I have enough knowledge to record and put these songs out on my own. Uh, whereas I'm such a perfectionist before I needed someone else involved. Like I would get to a certain plateau and it wouldn't sound professional enough to me. So I'd, I'd like tap someone in like a professional mixer. Um, but now I think I've got, I finally, I'm confident enough to put out music on my own. So my my goal is to put out a song at least every season. So I have a new one in the works for this winter. Uh, it's going to have a whole horn section and a grand piano. It's going to be kind of wild. It's going to be like Gojira meets an orchestra. Now, when you do stuff like that, like you're talking about, do you still do all the music yourself on the recording and everything? Yeah, whole thing no. on my own. Do you play like instruments or do you use like samples for certain things too? Or is it all the drums are programmed um, using easy drummer, uh, which is fantastic tool that I've been using for 20 years now. Um, I play the guitar with my hands, play the bass guitar with my hands. And then I do vocals at my buddy's studio in Long Island city. Um, And I feel like my vocals have come a really, really long way over this span of however many years. So my new goal now is to always put notes along with my screaming. Like the song Walk the Plank that I released earlier this year, while I was at the studio, I kept reminding myself, sing notes, sing notes, sing notes. Don't just do straight screams. And I feel like it adds this whole nother level of melody to the song. So yeah, I do it all on my own now. Maybe one day there'll be another rekindling of the band and it'll uh you know be live again but or maybe a reunion show here and there but just gonna be cranking it out on my own well we'll make sure we link all your musical projects in the show notes and everything so people can check all this stuff out because i'm I, i've talked on here before that i always think like when people do like a, like a solo project which essentially is what you're referring to obviously mm-hmm. i think that's really cool like i i I want to learn how to play all these instruments. I mean, I'm 40 now. When's it going to happen? You know, but I, I've always wanted to just for that purpose. Like, so I could do a band by myself because I don't think I'd have the patience to have somebody be like, Oh, let's do it this way. Or let's do it that way. Or let's change this part. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. I don't wanna, I'm such a control freak. I don't, I don't know how I would react to something like that. You know? Well, if you're good with a computer, you can program your own drums. You can program your own bass. Now there's plenty of like great bass, like bass guitar software. And soon enough, I give TuneTrack another year. They'll ha- they'll have it so you can program guitars, and then boom, like you got an entire album right there. 
it's so crazy to think about somebody making like a whole album like that too you know like yeah it's pretty wild you know the, the technology and then 20 years from now what, what what's the next step going to be no. you know I, I i think recording software has jumped pretty significantly in the last five years i yeah. can't imagine what it's going to be like five years from now yeah there was some article i read because they were talking about like when we'd be able to live forever <laughs> it was like in the city newspaper it was some guy who like he referenced it based on like how technology doubles every certain amount of years and if it keeps doubling like that like then they'll have right. the technology you know i was like what's going to happen to our skin and all those other weird questions <laughs> you know at that point but um so what's this what's the next project that you 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 uh threw on the list of bands here yeah so somewhere in the midst of all of the only weapon living and dying i started this band called behind the bullet which is basically like a rock band i i really wanted to do i never did like a straight rock project so i really had all these all these like southern metal influenced songs that i was writing for the only weapon that just didn't quite fit and every time i would try to bring it to the table all the dudes in the band would be like no dude i don't want to use any of that it's too like weird rock and roll so i kind of always had them tucked away so when the only weapon finally ended i started behind the bullet with a, a bunch of really great dudes that i knew from playing with the only weapon uh david and tony um they were like the sweetest best guys in the world we had a ball with that band so i basically brought an entire album to them and said like let's make this together so we made the whole album together and then we looped in my buddy oscar who was always playing guitar for the only weapon with me and we just had like four, you know four of the best dudes in new york city like playing in this rock band and the whole idea of the rock band was like fun music like just just like party rock um so we Put out an album we put out a couple singles we played a slew of shows in new york city and i feel like it was a lot easier to get shows for that band because it was way more like edible but from people you know like the singer really sang he wasn't screaming um so we were able to get like a lot more shows we my the singer of that band david is kind of nuts and has every toy imaginable like he has a scooter he has this he has five xboxes and eventually he bought an rv for us to tour in which was amazing i never had experienced anything like that so he we we decided we're going to book a tour we're going to book it on our own he bought an rv for the tour he fixed it up we booked the entire tour ourselves which was like the hardest thing i've ever had to do it was brutal but we finally got like a one-week tour together and we went on tour and it was just magical experience so I loved being in behind the bullet, but again, real life got in the way, you know, some guys just got old and wanted to move on with their life. One guy wanted to have a baby, move out of the city. So it was just, eventually it came to its natural end, but it will be like a shining jewel in my music career. Now, what years was that? That wasn't very long ago. I, I can't remember when the first album came out. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Yeah. Quick. And I guess while you're thinking about that, like the tour you're talking about having booked, like, did you just, did you guys just like hit up a bunch of clubs in like other cities and like just get dates like that pretty much or? Ugh, it was a hot mess. Um, so there, we, we hustled boy. We hustled <laughs> in every way possible. I was working, you know, like full days and I would come yeah. home and do three hours of like hustling to get shows. Right. So it happened in a lot of different ways. I think a few shows we met this girl online from the Midwest who had connections. So she would like try to get us shows for a price and we would like, just 
pay her to be like our bookie essentially we would look for other bands in that general vicinity we're trying to do like a northeast kind of thing in that general vicinity and reach out to them and say hey can we book a show with you or we would contact venues that we knew of that were big like the chameleon in like lancaster or whatever wherever that is we would like you know hit up venues that we knew were good uh and had shows all the time and just try to get on one of their shows i don't know how we did it but we got a full week's worth of music out of it and uh some wild stories from that uh, let me see behind the bullets first ep came out in 2016. oh yeah so that's not very long ago at all and i don't know yeah. that was a couple years of that project lasted if that yeah a few a couple years 2016 to 2019. wow but That's we were really like slow going, I would say. Like it, I, the band must have started in 2015 because it took us a year to make that album. Because again, like we were just a bunch of dudes working and you know, it was a side thing. And also Tony and David, the singer and the drummer of that band have their own music studio as a side hustle. So like, not only were they going to work every day, they were working their studio and then doing this band with me. So it just took forever to get anything done. Um, so a lot of that kind of made the band just way slower than it should have been. Well, it also seems kind of weird, not like in a like a weird, like insulting way, but just kind of weird, like that you'd be like almost middle age and like we're all working like real jobs, like full time and like still find a way to like do like a week tour. You know what I, I mean? know. Well, yeah, it, we, it was our vacation. Like we all like took a vacation yeah. off a week's vacation and and went on tour together. So yeah, it was like this fun experience to do as a vacation. Yeah, that's what I assume you probably would say it was like a vacation. Because I think now about like, you see all these hardcore bands now because like hardcore has been around for 40 years now. So you can see bands that are more like our age or older that will play like a weekend tour or like even full-time bands. And I always wonder like how they, how they because very many, very few bands are actually like full-time. You know what I mean? So I always wonder like how they would like, do it around like a real job per se. You know what I mean? It, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> I mean, I knew I had connections in Western New York, so we played a show in Rochester, which was a pain in the ass to get. Surprisingly, we played a show in Rochester at um, the Brew House or something, California Brew uh, House. I feel like an asshole, dude. That's literally right down the street from my house, man. I've been living down um, here for ten years. <laughs> I, went, I went to see Madball there probably like a couple months after you guys played there too. You know? Yeah, it was a wild place. Yeah. And then we played Buffalo with Mike Jeffers at Stamps the Bar. So nice. that was just so cool to see Mike again and just play with one of his bands. And then we eventually ended up all the way down to West Virginia because David's sister is from West Virginia. And we got so much love in West Virginia. It was wild. It became like our place. <laughs> like they kept asking us to come back. Like it was so much fun. So we just started booking shows in West Virginia because it was just so welcoming. I could, I might be mistaking it with another place, but I feel like I had a band that did well there, like on my label back in the day, but I, I could be mistaking it with like Pittsburgh or somewhere nearby, you know what I mean? But I, I do want to say like, I think West Virginia was the place. So. West Virginia is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, any, any other noteworthy things to mention about that band before we uh, bring uh, Vic Lazar back into the conversation? Uh, no, yeah, let's move on to one of these music projects that I just did recently. Uh, so... After doing a crash course on music production this year with uh, the Joey Sturgis company called Unstoppable Recording Machine. So eventually I started using Joey Sturgis Tones plugins and the Joey Sturgis world of plugins is way 
different from any company they've ever used or any dealt with. They're so interested in your success that they help you out every step of the way. And they're constantly like pushing you to learn. Um, I've never seen any company do this. So you buy one piece of software for them and they got your back for like the rest of your life. So I learned so much from like being a part of the Joey Sturgis world. And eventually I got offered uh, to um, a free membership to Unstoppable Recording Machine, which is basically like Joey and Joel Wanasek's like library of stuff that you can learn. So it's all these like video tutorials on anything you want to learn. So I, I like seriously crash course. I took, I did a, a, le a course a day. Sometimes the courses were six hours long. I would do a course a day for the amount of time that I had it, which was like two months. So I did this massive crash course, but coming out of that, I had all this cool knowledge of music production and I wanted to make an album. So it was the Christmas week and I didn't have anything planned. So I went rummaging through all my old stuff, like I always do, looking for something to do. And I found the very first album I ever made, which was a tightrope walker album from high school with all my buddies in my basement. It was a four track, like shitty recording. So I decided, well, I'm gonna remake this album from the ground up. So I programmed all the drums, did all the music. And then I talked to Vic Lazar, who was the singer of that band and said, this. This album won't work without you on it because you were like, like you're you're the voice of Tightrope Walker and he lives in LA now. So he agreed to do the vocals for it, shipped him out all the tracks. He found a way to do the vocals, shipped them back to me. And I released the, an album, Never Be The Same. And it was like a tribute to all those friends I had in high school uh, who I loved so much and just gave me so much love back. And it's called never be the same because basically like once you leave that era of time, it is never going to be the same. Um, so it's, it's an on the nose hit for that. And then it's also like pointing to the fact that life is never supposed to be the same. It's supposed to move forward. It's supposed to change. So here I am like 20 years later, making this album and my life is a hundred percent different and it's kind of a you know that's kind of the point of the album too so it's like a love letter to all those dudes that i from hornell that made me who i am you know it's that's that's well there's a couple of things to touch on there first i wanted to mention that when we put the timeline together for the interview and you put like the high school band thing i was like is this band in the right order like i'm really confused right now right so right, right. Totally now makes it make a lot more sense but the thing you're saying about never be the same, it goes back to my point that I was saying earlier about how like I stopped booking shows, but I obviously, like, as I've mentioned on here, I've always kind of kept my toe in the water and I've always kind of wondered it's the exact same thing. Like I, I wanted to move forward with my life. And like, I thought I was kind of outgrowing like this whole, like, obviously you're, you're always going to listen to hardcore. Anybody who says they drop out of hardcore still listens to hardcore. I don't, I don't believe anybody who stops listening to hardcore. It doesn't happen. But anyways, I knew I'd always listen to hardcore, but for some reason I was like, oh, I'm not going to be booking shows anymore. And I always look back now and I always wonder like how different things would have been. Like, obviously, yeah, my life's different now, but it still is very similar in the, in the ways like we're talking about, you know what I mean? And I'm glad to have kind of stepped away and done different things, but I'm also very excited to kind of like get back into like the way I was doing things 20 years ago, if that makes sense. Sure. You know? yeah. So, um, 
do you have anything else you plan on doing with that project or was it more just kind of like uh no, it was a one-time deal i put it up it's it's available you know streaming everywhere um it'll just live there as as a cool album uh, it sounds a lot like you know quicksand kind of music yeah that's um you know I'm i'm glad you're able to still do stuff like that do you have any other like any other musical projects that you're planning on doing or is it just going to be like the like the studio stuff at this point pretty much for now just going to be the only weapon for now um yeah. it takes so much effort to to be in a physical band right now that i i can't foresee it happening but never say never yeah now i'm not gonna lie like obviously you and i have been talking about doing this interview for a few months now and i was excited to do it but when i saw you were going to furnace fest i was like yo I got to get Gargiulo on soon now because like I could, I, I could have like Vogel or one of those dudes back on to tell their perspective, but I want to see it like from my view, like if I would have gone to the show and been watching the bands. So let's talk about Furnace Fest. Oh man, it was wonderful. First off. Um, yeah, it was a great time. And I, I strictly went as a fan. I had no, I was not playing. I wasn't doing any musical stuff there. Strictly went as a fan. Um, when we saw the lineup, it was just it blew me away that all these old bands were coming out of the woodwork and it blew me away. Like the amount of great bands who were all like stacked on top of each other. So I booked my ticket like almost a year ago, like in the spring, I booked it like the moment we saw it. Um, and then COVID happened and it got really heavy. So they were like, maybe the show's not going to happen. It was on again, off again, but I was always just heart set on going and I'm really glad I did. So First off, let's talk about Birmingham because I've never been to Birmingham before in my life. It's such a cool little city. It's like, it really reminds me of Rochester in so many ways. It's like a little city that has a college in it and it has like a lot of like hip stuff. It's just so, so reflective of, of Rochester to me. Um, so number one, we got there a day early. So we got to like mess around uh, Birmingham and just check it out and really enjoyed the place a lot. And then, so... So Birmingham is very proud of their heritage. Like they were like a big industrial town uh, back in the day. So the place where Furnace Fest actually was is called Sloss Furnaces, which is this enormous like old factory that they turned into fairgrounds. So there'll be this cool, like a stage set up and in the background there'll be like this enormous like fact old factory that's like rusting that just looks super cool. So the grounds where it was at was already cool enough and then the way that they did the show was just brilliant it really reminded me of the old hellfest days where it was just totally outdoors there's like stages kind of scattered all over the place and you just got to bounce around wherever you wanted to uh they did a fantastic job um all all weekend long so we were there all three days i was there with a couple of buddies of mine um there were so many amazing bands under one roof uh that we were just sometimes had to make sacrifices you know i'm gonna see 10 minutes of this band and then run over and see the rest of the set of that uh so it was just wild there were like food trucks all over the place there were merch tables i saw i got to see so many bands that i would never thought i'd get to see uh that don't really exist anymore yeah, no, when I saw that lineup too, like, as I said before, I'm not as into like the, the, the emo or indie stuff as you, but like even some of those bands, I was like, damn, they're playing, you know? Yeah. 
but it was just like a who's who basically of like the the the, the hellfests and and furnace fest that we're familiar with from back in the day you know yeah it seemed like they really wanted to rekindle the romance of the 20 uh, 2002 furnace fest i think was the last one so a lot of the bands that played that one came back simply to play this one as well like further scenes forever played and jeremy enoch played uh mineral played which isn't even a band anymore far as i know and then like a lot of like heavy hitters from today played like kill switch played august burns red played terror played it was just a wild weekend i was shocked to see mineral on the list like that's not a band i was ever huge into but like it was just like wow that's like i I fell in love with that band from the very beginning and i never got to see them play because they were just such a weird obscure band yeah exactly obscure is the perfect word for them actually yeah definitely and that's and that's another thing that we haven't really touched on a lot in this conversation that I've seen like literally any band who was around in the nineties and it's no offense to any of them, but some of these bands were literally like a local band that put out maybe a seven inch or maybe a split LP. They're all back together now. Like literally every band that was around 20 years ago, like, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking shit about any of these bands because some of them are good, but I wonder sometimes like, who asked for this? You know what I mean? Like it is weird. You know, it is surprising that together. all these old school bands have gotten yeah. back together. Yeah, like some of these bands we're all stoked to see, but sometimes it's just like totally out of left field. And then sometimes I'll see like, and I'm not gonna name any names. I don't want to seem like I'm talking shit about bands, but like I saw a record label today was reissuing a record that came out 20 years ago, and it was like limited to 300 copies. And I'm like, I can't imagine <laughs> 300 people want that record. You know what I mean? And again, it's no offense to the band or the label, but I'm like such obscure bands like it's crazy i think what, it's, what it's playing to, what's that i think it's playing to guys our age like the guys who remember that band being amazing and loving them and they're just like we're all at the age where we we have money and we still love music and we'll yeah. show up and watch your band play and buy your t-shirts and yeah. support you because yeah. we can now i guess with all that being said though, like what were some of your major highlights i know you mentioned some of the bands already. Oh, there was a lot, but I'll, I'll try to blast through them all. So there was this really cool band that my buddy wanted to see called Bad Cop, Bad Cop. They're like this punk band of all girls. They were just like a, such a cool surprise. I'd never heard that band before. Under Oath was insane. They're in, they have this entire crazy light show that they, that they have. Um, but I do miss Aaron being in it. Aaron that was the guy who was like, the old school singer of the band uh there's something missing without him um but i got to see thursday which i haven't seen in forever uh, it was wild to he- hear those songs live every time i die was like the band i basically went for and it was a party on stage like i knew it would be it was so much fun to watch them play uh Caven was wild to see because they played a lot of until my heart stops which they've had like a they're like weird about that album now you know they're weird about that whole heavy era of their life and they were totally like embracing it and i think it was they're embracing it because all the kids who were there were from 2002 so they're like let's give them what they want and they played tons of hard stop music which was awesome um it was cool to see bands that i've never seen before like the get up kids i've never seen them before i listened to them forever it's it's surprising to see like what those dudes look like Cause like the voice doesn't match the physical body at all. So it was awesome to see that further seeps forever. I haven't, I don't think I've ever seen play. So it was wild to see them play mineral. I've never seen play. I've only listened to on albums. So it was like surreal to hear it coming at me live. Uh, Jeremy Enoch played a lot of sunny day real estate songs. 
and some some fire theft songs which i love so that was wild to see uh amberlynn killed it i mean they were like one of the best bands of the weekend they were just so much fun and so pro living sacrifice was such a cool band to see because there's they're like one of those obscure bands that i've always loved but never knew i didn't i guess i didn't catch them while they were like a physical band so they were like super cool to see because they're so unique um i was so surprised that they were white dudes i don't know why uh their music just comes across as very sepultura to me so i expected them to be south american but no just a bunch of white dudes um shy halud was wild to see uh it was made up of brand new people except for matt fox again but you know people went crazy for them quick quick question about shy halud is that the first time or have you seen them a bunch of times since you exited the band i've seen them a bunch of times every time they come through new york i go see them play um and it's it's always a, a great time yeah um i would say the two biggest standouts of the entire weekend was august burns red that band was insane. I remember turning to my friend next to me after they played and I was like, I feel like a band from the future showed up in a time machine and played a show for me. It was like, it was untouchable. Sounded completely insane. And then Killswitch, of course, tore shit up. I mean, that band, so much fun because Adam's a nut job. And then I've... I don't think I've ever heard a band sound better live in my life. Like they just sounded so, so good and so heavy and so fun. And their singer was on point the entire time. Yeah, no, they were always a pro band. I booked them. They're one of those bands that I booked back in the day that kind of like taken by the burning where I feel like I was a little ahead of my time and I probably wouldn't have lost like 300 bucks. if I would have booked them a couple years later, you know? Sure. Sure. So a major thing for me and i'm not sure if this is what you meant in the notes but like when i go to rap concerts it's always an issue with the sound man now you put Mm. something in your notes about there being a stage issue yeah so so rent a a guy from south africa who was at my hotel and was at the 2002 furnace fest so he shined a little light on it for me The, the the way the place was set up was three stages one was a small outdoor stage one was a medium-sized indoor stage. Basically, it was like sides were covered, so you had to like get inside of that indoor area to see the stage. And then one was a huge outdoor stage. The two outdoor stages were totally fine. You could there was plenty of place to see the band. It was very easy to see the band. It was very easy to hear the band. The indoor stage was very difficult to see. Basically, if you weren't like fully in the room, you couldn't see anything. And you could barely like, and the sound was just kind of bad because you're like out of the, of the structure. So that was a big problem. And a lot of big bands were inside of that room. The guy from South Africa told me in 2002, the scene just wasn't that big. That was the main stage and everyone fit perfectly fine. So I feel like the dudes who set up the show just didn't understand the, what the, draw was going to be when they set these stages up and they didn't understand like how many people wanted to get into that little space so it was just hard to see anything that was in that room i forced myself in there for shy halud i forced myself in there for living sacrifice but there was a lot of bands i was just like i'm not putting the effort into getting into this room for one band and i'm not showing up an hour early to see this one band and that's kind of what you had to do to get in that room so that room was like a problem all weekend now you bringing this up 
it brings up a point that we haven't really talked about much and like I'm not trying to get too into the whole like COVID vax thing, which we might if we have time for current events. But my, my point is, is like I've seen a lot of bands canceling shows lately. I'm not going to mention any bands names again because I'm not here to talk shit. But I did see at least I want to say one, if not more bands that were playing Furnace Fest that canceled some of their own shows. And the reason being that they still played Furnace Fest and not their shows is because Furnace Fest is outside. But when yeah. I saw the pictures, when I saw the pictures, though, I'm like, yo, even if it is outside, like you would definitely have a much better chance of getting sick if you're up front at a show like this than like the show I went to last weekend, which really was outside. And I could just stand by myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the show definitely was outside. Yeah. The indoor room that I'm talking about had like tons of open sides, right. but right. it was it was kind of tall. Yeah. So it was just like the way the structure was built you had to get in one way and out one way to see the band, but essentially yeah. it was open air. Okay. Um, and I will say that they did, which I really appreciate. They did a lot of effort. The promoters did a lot of effort to say, you have to be vaccinated to get in here. And if you're not vaccinated, you need like a, a COVID test, like three days before you, you show yeah. up. Like they did everything they could to yeah. make sure that people were um, healthy yeah. in the show. Um, that being said, I did wear a mask the entire time because it was a million fucking people. Yeah. But there was lots of no masks in sight. So I've 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 been to I think well, including my buddy who DJ'd, I've probably been to four shows now. And the only one I didn't wear a mask was the DJ one because I was like by myself the whole time. But like at hard I've been to three hardcore shows, quote unquote, and I've had a mask on for pretty much if not the whole time, at least when the bands are playing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, if I can keep a distance of where I'm not around people, I'm not as worried about it. But if I'm like going to be like face to face with somebody, then yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm rocking the mask, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, and I definitely never went in the pit or anywhere, anywhere where it was like super tight. Cause, right. but there was plenty of people who were in a pit and super yeah. tight up front. I'll send you the link. There's definitely video footage of me uh, singing along to that hate breed cover wearing a Jim Cornette mask. So <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, but that's honestly why I'm waiting with the shows. Like, yeah. I, I like, I feel okay. Like I feel not completely safe, but safe enough to where I'll go to shows. But like, I don't, I wouldn't want to get somebody else sick. I wouldn't want to be in the middle of the the debate, like whether we should be testing or not. And I, I just want everybody to be happy. And I don't, I don't think we're at a place right now where everyone can be happy with shows. Enough unless your show is, unless your show is hundred percent outdoors, then yeah. you can't really do it. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, so I just, I want, yeah, I definitely want, I, th I think next year will be a safe enough time. I'm not totally sure. Cause I said that last year too. Um, I obviously have at least one thing in the works that I definitely want to make sure happens next year. But if we have to wait till 2023, then so be it, you know? I mean, you're almost out of time for this season for this year to have an outdoor show. So you're kind of waiting for next year anyway. No, we're definitely waiting. I'm not, that's not even what I'm talking about right now, but in general, any shows I'm waiting until next year, either way. Like I've talked to a few people about it and like, I have no qualms with like my friends that are booking shows. Like I'm supporting them and promoting them, but I just wouldn't want like, there's a small sect of people here that are like boycotting venues because they require a vax or a proof of, of, and I'm like, I get it fundamentally, but like, I also think it's kind of dumb at the same time because like these are like DIY venues that we were like doing benefits for to make sure they stayed open while COVID mm -hmm. was going on. And now the same people that were helping these venues are basically going to shut it down by boycotting it. You know what I mean? So it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of, it's a weird time we live in where like, it's hard. You can't keep, there's no way everyone's going to be happy with this. You know what I mean? But like, yeah, 
I, again, that touches more on, on the current events, I guess, if we get time, because I still have a few other things I want to uh, want yeah. to add. I mean, I will say at Furnace Fest, it seemed like most of the bands were coming off of a tour. Like this was like their last day of a tour. So they were out playing shows like left and right. Yeah. But a lot of them were, were definitely tired by the time they got to Furnace Fest. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I said, I, I, I feel okay going to shows, but I just, I want to wait a little bit longer till a few more people feel okay about it. And maybe we won't have to have this like argument about, you know, different things. Cause like I, I'm obviously vaccinated and I'm still wearing a mask, but like I do understand some people, you know, issues with it you know what i'm saying but like i don't think it should be something that they're going to boycott a venue over either you know so we got a little bit of work to do to get everybody happy i guess you know um is there anything else you want to touch on with fernifest that we didn't touch on with it um the only good news is it's happening again in 2021 i think the original idea was like kind of a reunion show and that was it but they it was such a success that they said at the end of the fest they're doing it again in 2021 so i'll probably be there again 2022 Yes, 2022. That's what I meant. It feels so weird because it feels like we still are in 2020 sometimes. You know what I, I mean? Know, I know. I know. One like non-hardcore thing that, that Rob started telling me about, and I wasn't even sure if you would want to talk about it at all, So, but you put yeah. it on the notes. So I'm glad you did because I'm not really sure if you're aware that like I played, and it's a little different than what we're going to talk about, but somewhat similar. I played daily fantasy sports like professionally for like at least three or four years. Like That was all I was doing for money. No shit. Obviously, esports, I'm not as familiar with, but it did come into the picture later on. Like, towards the end of when I was playing Daily Fantasy full-time, like, DraftKings, and I want to say there might have been uh-huh. another site that has, like, you can play as the teams or whatever, and then they play against each other in Daily Fantasy. I still don't really understand how it works. Now, obviously, though, you have some experience with esports, so can you kind of tell me a little bit about how you got involved with that and everything? Yeah, I can I can give you the the rollout of that. So my good buddy Marty Strenzewilk, who is a Rochester guy, he grew up in in Hilton, I think it's called the town, little town he's from. Um, he's one of those guys that has a crazy idea and then goes and does it. <laughs> he's like a real doer. Um, so Marty has always been into esports. So what esports is for people who don't know who are listening is professional video game competition for games like League of Legends, Call of Duty, Overwatch, Rocket League, Starcraft, Smite. Um, these games aren't necessarily modeled after traditional sports, and not ne- it's not necessarily Madden and nba 2k they're totally their own they're totally unique games but there's an entire industry dedicated to the competition of them so marty has always been really into esports um i've always been really into video gaming i've been a gamer my whole life so he had this harebrained idea to start a website that would service the esports community it was gonna it was called follow esports so basically when esports happens, the, the matches are happening all over the internet. And this was at a time where that information was very, very hard to come by. So basically if you sat down at any night and you wanted to watch esports, it was very difficult to find the link or the place where you could watch it. So we came up with this idea of the TV guide of esports, just a place where you gather all that information 
and give it to people so they can go find esports to watch very easily. So that's how we started the company. And it was only supposed to be that. And it started off as that and it ran for about a year or so. And then we got into the sponsorship game where we wanted to get more people to know who we were. So we were gonna start sponsoring teams. And what sponsorship is very much like NASCAR in esports, there's like uh, logos all over their jerseys. So a sponsor will reach out to your, your team and say, I'm gonna give you X amount of dollars to put my logo and, and stuff in, in, in these places. So we reached out to a team and then we realized Oh, it's just it's just as cheap to have an entire team be called whatever we want as opposed to being on the jersey. So we started a, a team, a Counter-Strike team called Follow Esports, and it took off. And people loved our team and did really well. So we decided, oh, we're no longer a website, we're an actual team now. And we rebranded to Splice, and Splice became this juggernaut it was like a global esports company we had office in rochester we had me in new york we had an office in berlin we had people all over the world working for us we had tons of teams were involved in, in tons of different games at one point we had gears of war league of legends uh, call of duty smite starcraft counter-strike like we were involved in everything and it did really, really well. I, my role at the company was to do anything creative. So I was part of the design department. Um, and eventually when I moved to Rochester to do the job, I became part of the video department as well. Uh, Marty was always the uh, business guy. So he was helping and, and part of the team production. So he would like, uh, scout for teams and put the teams together and also do all the like money businessy kind of work. So one of the main goals of the company was to get jobs in Rochester and get jobs in a really crazy field in Rochester. And we totally succeeded in that. We were on main street in Pittsburgh for years. We were also like, before we had a physical office space, we were just like online global company and we were just slacking every everyone left and right so the company did really well um it was really successful we eventually started teaming up with a company in toronto called overactive media this is when the overwatch leagues was coming around and they wanted to have an overwatch team uh so basically the things that overactive media had we didn't like deep pockets and guys who are like super, super professional. Like their CEO was the guy who ran the Canadian Olympics committee. Um, their investor guy was like, you know, head honcho investor in, in Toronto for years and years and years. And then on the flip side, we had all this esports knowledge and endemic esports knowledge. Like half of our crew were esports dudes and we were running teams for years. So like we kind of combined forces at one point to, to work together. And then the relationship was went so well that they eventually acquired Splice and kind of got sucked into that company. Over time, the Rochester office just wasn't needed anymore. So that got closed down. And me and Marty kind of went our separate ways from the company. Company still totally exists. Overactive Media is still functioning in Toronto. They have uh, three major teams, four major teams, I think. Uh, Mad Lions, which is our League of Legends team. 
um, and Mad Lions, which is a, a Counter-Strike team now, maybe. Um, so Mad Lions is basically just Splice rebranded. Um, and uh, Toronto Ultra, the Call of Duty team, is our team. And um, Toronto Defiant, which is probably the team I've spent the most time working on, is our Overwatch team. Oh, so, so me and Marty are still big shareholders, but we're no longer working at the company. I never really got super into esports for, you know, it's just not really my bag. But like I said, I could, I could look at it through Daily Fantasy. And there was like a year. Oh, no, it was last year during COVID. There weren't any real sports going on. So we all had to play like Daily Fantasy esports. I'm telling you, like anybody who's a pro in Daily Fantasy sports played that last year. I know the name Mad Lions from that. Unless there's another team with Lions in it. That's where I know it from. Yeah, no, like I said, when Rob told me about you guys doing that, again, I didn't realize it was the same Marty. He just told me you were involved with it at the time. He probably didn't realize I knew who Marty was. And Yeah, man, we built it ourselves. We built it from the ground up. It's pretty wild that this global esports company existed in Rochester, New York, of all places. There's no other esports team with Lions in the name. Is, is there either? Or that there can... might be, but Mad Lions is, is probably who you're thinking of. I do think it was Mad Lions, and that's just so funny. You guys had a connection to that team, like, and... Like, again, I don't, I don't know anything about esports. I couldn't tell you, like, why I would have picked that team other than, like, I probably read an article where some, like, Daily Fantasy pro or whatever was like, oh, Mad Lions are going to be the team to pick tonight or whatever, because I don't even know how esports works, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. and I don't plan to after this conversation, I'll do respect. Yeah. So, <laughs> we're going to kind of start wrapping things up soon, but do you kind of want to like divulge just kind of what you're into, like what you're up to now a little bit before we wrap up a little bit or? Yeah, sure, sure. So yeah, after all of that, after the dust settled with all the esports stuff, I just wanted to go back to doing something that I knew I could do really, really well. So I started my own little company called Garjulo Creative, and I just do all the video stuff that I used to do, like video editing, video animation. Uh, a lot of old clients got in touch with me, so I'm kind of doing that on my own as a freelancer. Uh, which is great because then I get to make my own schedule and chill out if I want to, or have a lot of work if I want to. So it's been, it's been pretty nice to be able to do like a job for two weeks and then play video games for two weeks and then do a job for two weeks and then go on vacation for two weeks. Like that's kind of my life now. I guess without asking too much details, did you basically quit the re the real job air quotes that people can't see to do the esports thing like did that become a full-time thing at that point or yeah so when i was doing splice i was doing my job at moondog and then doing splice on the side for a really long time for years and it was brutal yeah. so eventually i had to stop my full-time job at moondog give up this great job and take a chance on doing the esports thing. And I'm really glad I did, but it was only like the last year or so that in existence that I was there. Um, but I moved back to Rochester and I was living there for like a full year doing it full time. And now, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And I just wanted to make sure I had that information. So now kind of take me into what I guess everything else you got going on then, like you were saying. Yeah. So I'm just doing Gargiulo creative now doing some video work. Uh, with old clients and new clients, um, doing it all freelance. And then my brand new, uh, my brand new plan, since I've been through the experience of Splice, 
I'm no longer scared to create companies and do big ideas. So my next new idea is I am going to start buying up properties and making Airbnbs out of them. And I started already. I have one in the works that should be closing in the next two weeks. It's going to be like my little vacation home, but also my first Airbnb property. Hopefully it goes well and it's all successful and I can keep doing that. Yeah, I saw you posted that you had bought a home recently. I didn't know that it was for what you're talking about now. So that was the other thing. I was like, man, maybe I should wait a couple of weeks to hit him up about doing the. No, the that's cool, man. Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to be my new my new venture. Uh, setting up this home to be an Airbnb and see how it goes, and then hopefully just uh, buy more properties in the future. Yeah, my girlfriend's always like that's always been the thing. We got to get into real estate. We got to get into real estate, and we just never really have. I mean, technically, we are because we own where I'm doing this podcast now, but like, I'm guessing that when we buy our next house, we'll probably sell this house. It would be cool to keep more properties, but you know, mm -hmm. I don't know if we'll be able to afford to do that, unfortunately, but it's the kind of thing where like, you got to get the snowball rolling. And then once it's rolling, it'll start paying for other things. Yeah. My girlfriend does pro services at Lowe's. So she works with like contractors and home improvement guys like all day. So I'm always telling her that I think she should get into that line of work, like, like running like a like thing. And now she's like, I should look into jobs like that, which is pretty cool. Like state jobs that would kind of be affiliated with that. But like, I think she'd be really good at like flipping houses too, because she already knows like from working at Lowe's, like how to do literally everything in a house. Like she always Hell tells me, yeah. like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you since, the, since the pandemic hit, the whole real estate world has changed. Like everyone wants to fix their house. Yep. Everyone's selling their house for way more money than it's yep. worth. It's a good time to get into that world. I guess if everybody's selling their house for more than it's worth, does that still make sense for like the Airbnb type thing or whatever? Cause aren't you going to be paying more for the properties or whatever at that point? Or is it like, I'm not to get too much into the, you know, no, I mean, you, it could, you could be, but I don't think it's ever going to go all the way back down to the way it was. Right. Yeah, because it's been like a year like that now where like, because I remember last summer, like she started like, people like, like three of the houses on our street sold last summer. And like, they sold for like 30 or $40,000 more than what the people paid for the houses, which might sound might not sound like a lot. But if you like our, 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 our neighborhoods, like around 100,000, maybe even a little bit less for the houses, which I'm sure right. is like nothing compared to where you're in New York City. It's like 150% over what it, yeah. what it should be. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the bubble will burst eventually. But I think it won't go. It, I think the world has changed now. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, like I said, we want to, we want to get a, a better house eventually. And I, I think we want to try and do it before the market changes. So hopefully we will be able to, uh, you know, do you, what, do you have any other stuff coming up that you're, that you're uh, working on? Uh, with like I mean, the last, the last thing I'm hoping to get more traction on is music production. I'm hoping that like I can get other bands to come to me to start, you know, mixing and mastering their music um i'm trying to convince rob to give me a song of his which he's been reluctant to do but um i'm, I'm hoping that with all my work with the only weapon it will prove that i could do it and like slowly make my way into doing other people's music that'd be really cool are you, are you gonna have enough time to do all this stuff that you're talking about doing yeah yeah i'm doing it right now so i might as well <laughs> i'm already in it I guess wrapping things up, uh, anything you would like to add or, or do you want to like plug all the projects in one spot here at the end of the episode? Uh, yeah, let me plug a few of the music projects and then I'll move into the professional projects. 
So if you're looking for any of my music, the main thing would be theonlyweapon.com. Secondary things would be behindthebullet.nyc. That's the rock project. Um, the last thing would be tightropemusic.com. That's that tightrope walker album I talked about earlier. In terms of professionalism, you could find me at vincentgargiulo.com, which is a very hard word, so I'll spell it out. V-I-N-C-E-N-T-G-A-R-G-U-I-L-O.com. You can find Gargiulo Creative there. It has my entire reel and portfolio of all the work that I've done, all the work that I'm very proud of. Um, and contact me if you need anything in that realm. Unfortunately, enterprisehardcore.com enterprise is not on there. But, you know, like I said, we, I, I'm not the most sentimental person sometimes. So, <laughs> hmm. um, yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate you doing this interview tonight, man. Like I said, I know it was a little, a little uh, we've been talking about it for a little while and it's a little late for us to be chatting, but uh, I appreciate you staying up a little bit to do this. Uh, Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, so I think we'll wrap up the episode there then, man. Like I said, I, I really appreciate uh, Vinny Gargiulo coming on and do the episode with me. Thanks to Rob Antonucci. I'm sorry we were a little bit too late for you tonight. Uh, thanks to Greg Benoit and Rochester Hardcore History for always helping out with everything. Thanks to my family for all the support. As always, check out EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. Give us a follow on Instagram. Uh, see everyone real soon and stay safe.